Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Where they don't have an extra 250 chemicals. And Recorded what I find live. is people tend to smoke less. They tell me it's easier to quit when they want to quit. And... They feel better about smoking. They don't feel so guilty. Well, it came up about tanning the other day, and one of my patients was very upset because she likes to tan. And she doesn't live there, but once in a while she likes to tan. And a lot of the women like to have a little bit of a tan before the first time they go to the beach. And she asked me what I thought, and she was very upset because the uh, government was getting involved and they wanted to make it very difficult and have some new rules and regulations on tanning and take it take the choices away from the people. And I told her, first off, I think a lot of that, too much of it is bad, but a little bit once in a while, probably not so terrible. And if that's what you want to do, you should have that choice. It should not be somebody else making that choice for you, whether it's um, friends, family, or the government, and especially not the government. They need to stay out of that kind of stuff. If, if you want to do it, you should be able to do it. You're not hurting anybody else. And, and like I said, most of the people I know don't live at the tanning booth, so they're not suffering all those terrible things the government wants to tell you about, like the, the global warming and all that crazy stuff. It's funny how we don't hear much about those kind of things after the Northeast gets hit with a winter storm in late spring, you know, global warming slides out the door. Uh, eating fat is now not so terrible when they were telling you how bad it was for you and they were wrong. So I tell everybody, no matter what the little vice is, whether you like to have a drink, whether you like to smoke, whether you want to get tan, uh, whatever you like, do it in moderation. Don't don't abuse everything. You know, so many things all of us do have dangers and risk, but they also have rewards and there's enjoyment. And sometimes what one person likes, another person might detest, and it could be the other way around, and none of us has the right to interfere with that stuff. So when you come to me, I'm not going to put you down or ridicule you <laughs> if you do something that I don't think is the healthiest for you. God knows I do many things that aren't perfect. I like to ride motorcycles. Many people would say that's absolutely crazy and dangerous. And maybe they're right, but I just love it when I do it. And I hate helmets. I wear them a lot of times, but there's times when I don't. It's 150 degrees in Houston, and you're stuck on the freeway in a helmet. It's not fun. So... A lot of that stuff. You don't have a seatbelt on a motorcycle, but they make you wear one in a car. So they could say that's dangerous, but on a motorcycle, you know, it wouldn't serve any purpose, so they have to shut up about it. So there's a lot of things that we do that others might look at differently, but if it's something you like, just don't abuse it. Don't go crazy. 
and do it in moderation and enjoy whatever it is. You know, I've known people that smoked and they were in their 90s. And I've known people that drank like a fish and never had a problem ever. But then I know people that have had cancer, lung cancer in particular, and never smoked a day in their life. And people that had liver cancer and never drank. So who's to say what? My my job is to help you make good decisions and give you the benefit of my learned knowledge and experience in the real world with people and things that you learned in school, but not to tell you that everything's bad, don't do it. That, that's just absolutely ridiculous. I mean, good God, if every time we ate a meal, we found an ingredient that wasn't perfect and we didn't eat that anymore, we'd all starve to death because you can only grow so much unless your occupation is rancher and farmer. I mean, you're going to have to take a chance. I tell people when you go out to eat dinner, ask questions when you're there. Ask them what kind of oils and fats they cook with. Ask them what kind of ingredients. But don't beat yourself up if everything isn't perfect. Which brings me to one of my next things. Many, many people love the catfish places that are catfish all you can eat. And I have a good friend that owns a restaurant, and they're very frustrated because they can't find catfish that aren't farm-raised anymore. Well, now, if anybody's sitting there thinking, so what's the big deal? The big deal is when we catch deep water, freshwater fish in their natural environments, we get them when they eat and do the things they naturally would do. And so when we eat them, we benefit from the things that they've eaten naturally in the wild. Just like if you went down in the North Atlantic and swam down there with, uh, you know, some of the, the natural fish and ate algae right next to them, well, you could eat algae all day right next to them, but you're not going to get what they get when they eat that algae and convert it and you eat the fish. It just doesn't work that way. When the cow eats that grass in the field, well, you could eat the grass right next to the cow all day too, but you're not going to get what you get when you eat the meat from the cow that ate the grass. They've got three or four stomachs. They process it, they convert it, and when we eat that meat, which we were taught to eat from the beginning of time, we benefit in a way that we never could benefit from going down there and eating that grass. So now take a farm-raised fish. They are fed basically synthetic crap food to fatten them up, to make them grow quickly, so they can put them on your table and have a catfish all-you-can-eat night. Well, I'm sorry, but I used to love catfish, and I'm not going to go out of my way to eat farm-raised catfish anymore. There's probably a few times I did it that I didn't know I was doing it. But if I know it, I, I, just, I just can't picture all the stuff I mean, they keep them basically in a swimming pool-sized place 
even if it's a, in a lake or somewhere else, and they're restricted, there's nothing natural about their life, and the food they get is the only food that people give them. Now, that's fine if you have an aquarium and you're not going to eat your fish, but it's not fine when you're raising them for somebody to eat. Now, there are some natural foods that they could feed them, but they're not going to do that. They want fast-growing, quick turnover in their money, and they want to fill them restaurants full of food. And the restaurants, they're at a disadvantage because a lot of people want catfish, and a lot of people don't even know the difference between farm-raised and not. They haven't got a clue. But I assure you, farm-raised is not very healthy. You get that deep cold water cod from the North Atlantic and its natural environment, and it is so healthy for you, you almost don't need anything but to lightly saute it and put it on the plate. Uh, I'm just amazed at how good some of that stuff tastes. But you're not going to find that with catfish. All that eat catfish better have some special cooking and frying and batters and stuff to make it good because it's not naturally in its own environment and it's been farm raised and full of all those synthetic ingredients. So it's never the same. So anyway, if you go eat that catfish, don't beat yourself up. I wouldn't make it a real regular habit. I'd eat fish that's fresh caught, wild caught, or flash frozen caught in North Atlantic or the Pacific or someplace where it's in a natural environment or in a lake where there's a natural environment and the water's not polluted like up there in where was it, Minnesota or one of those places where the, the water was from full of lead and looked so bad it was unbelievable. You know, you you want to use a little common sense. But there's going to be times where you might go out and eat a fish and you're not going to know. Enjoy it. Just next time ask. Find out where it came from. There's a lot of things that we're not ever going to know the whole truth because the government has fixed it where you don't have to say everything. You can cover things up. And they have like certain percentages. Like if you don't go over this percentage, you don't have to tell them it's in there. Well, that's not really fair, but they get away with it. A lot of you, uh, we've talked about milk when we had Grant Wilson on. One of the things I don't like about pasteurization is it kills uh, the food. It makes it pretty much a dead food. Now, Grant's doing something called low-temp pasteurization, trying to save some of that and still meet the government requirement. But what's so sad about that, the people that sell bad milk, pasteurize it, homogenize it, basically kill it to death, stick it in a grocery store, and sell it for 2 to $3 a gallon because they get government subsidized to sell that bad milk because all them politicians are in bed with those guys that are marketing the milk. And so we get stuck with that. And not only do we get bad milk, but our tax money goes to subsidize them so they can sell it to us. It's a terrible pattern. They act like they're doing us a favor because we bought it at a discount but we also paid them about $7 a gallon to put it in the store for two or three. If you drink raw milk and they have raw milk products, 
the people that do that take better care of their milk, and they don't, and they know it has to be healthy and it's alive, and they treat it like that. People like Grant Wilson over at Grauman Farms started that to take care of his sick kids. You think he's not going to make sure that's the healthiest milk in the world? I've, I've had people ask me, well, what do you do to make sure that the raw milk's okay? And I say it always was. They just had some lazy dairy guys that didn't want to take care of their milk, and they got the government to subsidize them and let them pasteurize it and kill it. They didn't care about nutrition. They cared about sales. And that's why doctors like me are not very popular with those guys and not popular with the pharmaceutical companies because we care about health care. I'm thoroughly convinced if you took a, a dictionary and you had an hour, many of these people could not spell health care if you helped them. They don't care. It's strictly money. And, you know, you got to care. It's important. The people that meet me and get to know me, they know I care. They know I don't have some personal agenda to sell them something. But if they don't know you, they, they wonder. The only sad time is when it's your own family who won't listen and you watch bad things happen, and that always hurts. But you have to move on to do the best you can. Everybody's different. Everybody sees things different. And so we do what we can. I mentioned that I have been sick for a couple of days. And especially when people call me and I talk on the phone, I would try not to let them know that I wasn't feeling good because I don't want that to be their problem. I want them to be able to talk and tell me what's going on. And a good friend of mine called the other day, and right away he could tell that I was a little down. And I said, yeah, I've been trying to get over this. I'm hitting it with everything I got. And if I was not the doctor and the patient, I would say get some bed rest, take it easy, take all this stuff. Have somebody get some soup for you, take care of you. But when you're the doctor and the patient, uh, it's a little difficult. And as I said, I'm a lousy patient because I don't want to be sick. It, it really hurts me to see people that are sick or in pain. And I know from this week that I'm not liking it very much when it's me. Um, so I want to make sure I'm good at what I do. And I, I think one of the things that is humbled me and made me a pretty good doctor if I am one is that I've had most everything everybody comes to me with um, except for a few female problems but I've known enough females and had them explain things to me that I've learned them pretty well one of the greatest things I did by accident I had to take some seminars one time on nutrition and things for continuing education and I found this wonderful doctor. I don't think she practices anymore, but she was a female doctor who taught us what it was like from not just the doctor's perspective, but from the female point of view, what they were going through, what they felt. When they tell you this, this is what they mean. And I found that so enlightening and so helpful. She taught us about geriatrics. She taught us about delivering babies and breach and things to do, and her and her husband had delivered their babies at home. Um, she taught us a lot of things about uh, women's health and from a woman's point of view. Because she said, well, guys, now she said, I'm not talking to the ladies right now, but guys, when they say this, this is what they mean. They're trying to describe this. This is what they feel. 
And, you know, you can't relate to that, but I'm going to tell you what they mean and what they're talking about. And it helped a lot. So I've had the benefit of being smart enough by accident to go back and take her, take her the first time and, and smart enough the second time to look her up and take some more courses. So I learned a lot of things about uh, female hormone problems and female specific uh, problems and diseases from her, from her perspective and a woman's perspective and the doctor's perspective. So I, I was very fortunate and I've been able to help a lot of ladies because of that. Uh, as I always say, be very, very quick to listen and slow to speak. You will learn so much, and you will look so smart because the patients want to make you look smart. On the chiropractic side, I had a patient recently who I've known probably about 40 years, haven't talked to in quite a while since I left Budweiser and he retired, but he had fell in his garage one day back in November, and he just called me the other day, and he said, I went to my primary care guy, he sent me to this guy and that guy, and he said, I've been to physical therapy, I've been to all these things, and I can't hardly walk, I'm in constant pain, and they can't seem to really find anything wrong, they just tell me it's muscle problems. Well, the problem is you wouldn't go to a car service shop with your airplane, most likely, unless the guy just happened to work on everything. And when you go to a primary care guy, they don't study much of this. They're looking for tumors or internal bleeding But other than that, they don't understand that if a vertebrae shifts or there's compression of the disc, that it can cause all this. And a small difference on an x-ray might not even show up to the eye that's not used to looking for it and cause misery beyond belief. So anyway, this gentleman said, I want to come see you. And he'd never been in before. So I said, well, bring me whatever you got, your x-rays and everything. And he said, well, they never did x-rays. And I said, well, that's the first thing they should have done, but bring me what you have. So he brought me his MRIs, and they probably did those because they make a lot more money on them, but they didn't need to do. Usually you do the x-ray first, always, and if you need an MRI, you make the x-rays and the patient dictate and push you there because you can't figure anything else out. But what I saw was typical, the man's in his 70s, typical degeneration of the disc, compression, nerve root irritation. And so they were partially right. They told him it's a muscle problem. Well, it doesn't work that way, but they had it a little bit right. If you have a joint problem, if you get a compression of the disc and it interferes the nerve roots, if the disc bulges into the spinal cord, all these things cause a reaction of the body. Usually, the muscles will spasm and lock up to protect you, and it can be very painful, and it can make you 
feel like you're 150 when you may be only 30. And it makes you very scared, very humble when you can't walk and get around and do things you normally do. So unfortunately for this friend of mine, he went to the wrong guys who didn't have a clue. And they had sent him the physical therapy just to kind of, that's what they do. They send everybody physical therapy. Now, I have some wonderful friends that are physical therapists, and it is a great profession. But you shouldn't be doing physical therapy until we've started fixing the problem, and then you let the physical therapist bring them back to where they once were. But the MDs like to write that script and send it to the physical therapist and tell them what they think they should do, and the the MD doesn't have a clue what that physical therapist knows. So usually if you do that, you're making it worse because you didn't start fixing the problem. Well, when I meet him, I open my door, and there he is with a cane, and he can hardly walk. He can't turn his neck, and this has been going on since November. So this is December, January, February, March, April. So for five months, he's been going through hell and no relief at all. Well, fortunately, I looked at his MRI while he was doing paperwork, and I saw very typical things I see at that age. And so I told him, no matter what, we got to heal this on the inside and the outside. If you just do the physical stuff, the chiropractic stuff, and we don't heal the inside, you're not going to ever really get truly healed. So I recommended some things to deal with the inflammation, the swelling, the soft tissue repair, to help heal the disc and the tendons and the ligaments on the inside, natural good things that work. And then we treated him chiropractically. I did interferential current. I did my, I used to have a therapist do massage work, but now I have a a thumper massager that I use. I do some deep tissue. I do some low-level laser therapy. Um, Then I adjust them from head to toe. I literally check everything. I don't care if you come in and tell me your thumb hurts. We're checking everything. I got you in here. Let's take a look. Well, the first visit, he got up, and he was a lot better, but you could tell he was a little leery. It's like, wow, I can't believe I feel this good. And he was waiting for it to come back. And I said, the first visit, I see a lot of improvement, but it does sneak back a little. I see the most improvement on the second visit. I'd like to see you back, skip a day, and bring you back. He popped in today for his second visit, and he said, I'm feeling so much better. He said, my neck's a little tight. It was kind of sore, you know, because a lot of times they're pretty sore after we work them over and move things that would rather not move. But after the second visit, he was a lot better. And before I had a chance to bring it up, he said, I'm coming back to see you next week. So in two visits, we did what nobody even came close to doing in in five months, and that is get him a little bit of relief. And it's so sad, but unfortunately, he went to the wrong guys. And unfortunately for them, they're not taught this kind of stuff. So I feel very grateful when I get to help somebody, especially somebody that's an old friend, who's trying to enjoy their retirement years and, and scared and hurting really bad. So, Well, as, as always, ladies and gentlemen, it is such a pleasure to be here. I hope I didn't sound too bad with my chest congestion and cough. At least you didn't have to call 912 or 913. 
uh, like I said, 911's been used way too much. And um, God bless you with health and happiness. And take good care of yourselves. And God willing, I will see you again next week. Thanks to all of you. And uh, have a great week. And take good care of yourself. We're going into the final bit here. And uh, the song will be on in just a moment. Seems the love I've known has always been the most destructive kind. Guess that's why now I feel so old before my time. Yesterday when I was young, the taste of life was sweet as rain upon my tongue. I teased at life as if it were a foolish game. The way the evening breeze may tease a candle flame. The thousand dreams I dreamed, the splendid things I planned, I always built to last on weakened, shifting sand. I live by night and shun the naked light of day. And only now I see how the years ran away. Yesterday. heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Make the aspirin mistake. Aspirin was discovered by mistake during World War II and suppresses your immune system and prevents blood clotting. Don't expose your body to risk when you can use a natural inflammation and pain reliever called Extra Strength Pain Relief by Apothecary Herbs. Discover the power this formula has with salicin to enter the system in 60 seconds to work hard and relieve pain for 12 hours. Whether it's arthritis, sports injury, or flu, you can relieve aches, pain, and swelling with our Extra Strength Pain Relief Formula. Call Apothecary Herbs now, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom Financial obligations or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out? When life is too much to handle, use Apothecary Herbs Emotional Stress Formula. Feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope. Complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee. You've waited long enough. Call Apothecary Herbs now. 
toll free 866-229-3663 that's 866-229-3663 international callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the three w's dot thepowerherbs.com Herbs announces a brand new formula to help balance blood pressure from head to foot, strengthen your heart muscle, and reduce cholesterol. Now you have a professional strength alternative that works all without fear or worry of serious side effects. Empower yourself. Become independent from the expensive drugs. Call Apothecary Herbs and ask for heart, blood pressure, and cholesterol formula toll-free, 866-229-3663 or online at the 3 www.thepowerherbs.com. Heart, blood pressure, and cholesterol formula is just $24.95 and comes with a money-back guarantee. So get a pencil and write this down. Apothecary Herbs, toll-free, 866 866- 229-3663 or on the web at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom I'm your resident herbalist, Wendy Wilson. Hope you had a great day. We're here to empower you. That's what we like to do here on Herb Talk. Magical engineer Frank and I have a great show, and thanks for joining us on the American Voice Radio Network. Uh, We're going to be talking about diet versus drugs. Some new evidence on how your diet really is better than drugs. Uh, Also, we're going to be talking about fleas, which I know somebody will be listening to very sharply. And also, we're going to be talking about antioxidants. So we got lots to do and a big old quack report. But before we get to all that great stuff, big salute and semper fi to our righteous men and women in uniform. I lift them up in prayer daily, and I pray for America and this nation. But, you know, the most important thing about all that is I'm spending time with and just really nurturing my relationship with my Lord. And uh, I'll never, ever regret spending that kind of time every day. It's like the highlight of my day. My day is not right until I do that, right? So you'll never regret that time. But while I'm there, I'm letting them know that we need righteous men of valor to set this nation, this ship aright, uh, so we sail on uh, without uh, having any problems, you know. And I pray that we'll all do that. And um, people have wisdom and discernment this year, you know, as we come up to voting. Let us vote the way the Lord wants us to. His will be done, but we're going to need some supernatural power. We're going to pull anything off. 
that's of a righteous nature. Because the world is so corrupt, it's so wicked, we need his help. And mind the time, it grows short. And without further ado, let's do the quack report. Thanks, Frank. Okay, first up in the quack report, here's some new research that ended up in the edition of the Psychosomatic Medicine Journal. Uh, experts in Tel Aviv, Israel, uh, did a study. They wanted to see if burnout uh, makes people more susceptible to heart attacks. So the the syndrome that we refer to as burnout is more of a work-related, emotional exhaustion kind of thing. Um, workers that get burnout tend to get more cynical, frustrated, feeling drained. Um, professionals that typically experience burnout um, have some sort of high stress and emotional involvement in uh, their work, usually combined with human services. So professions like um, nursing and teaching, uh, police work, uh, physician assistants, emergency room doctors, that kind of thing. So they studied, um, they followed over 8,000 healthy employed adults for three and a half years they wanted to determine is there any kind of correlation between burnout and then developing some sort of coronary heart disease. And what they found out was that um, there were percentiles in their group, and the upper fifth upper uh, percentile had a almost 80% higher risk of developing heart disease uh, compared to the other participants. So I guess, you know, high-strung maybe personality group. Moving along in the quack report, um, they say common cholesterol-lowering medicines uh, do increase our risk of developing diabetes. Um, the American Journal of Cardiology researchers there uh, looked at, you know, medical care, pharmacy records from a group of adults that were using the statin drugs, um, and they wanted to see, you know, how much of the statin use really you know, move people into um, a diabetes type of element, too, when they didn't have diabetes to begin with. Um, so these statin drugs, these class of medicines called reductus inhibitors, um, under the names of, you know, Lipitor, Lescol, Mevacor, Provacol, Crestor, Zocor, these type of medicines supposedly, you know, lower the bad LDL cholesterol. Well, they found that these statin drugs, offered a 20% higher risk of developing diabetes compared to those that don't take them. Mm. Side effect. Moving along in the quacker, let's see, butter substitutes. I don't eat butter substitutes, but those people out there that do, heads up, new research says you may get Alzheimer's because you're using butter substitutes. Um, This is uh, research that ended up in the Journal of Chemical Research in Toxicology, and uh, they wanted to see if the margarine, you know, the, the make-believe, the wannabe butter, <laughs> uh, which typically is made from a, a fermentation byproduct, and it winds up being a diacetyl type of ingredient, which the diacetyl researchers looked at it, and these butter sub- substitutes with diacetyl in them um, have an aggregation to the amyloids in your brain, and the amyloids are associated with the development of Alzheimer's disease. So they, they said the diacetyl ingredient it has a size and structure that can pass through or cross over the blood-brain barrier, and it accelerates 
the formation of these amyloids, which they believe is the cause of Alzheimer's. And they say they're more resistant to breaking down under natural processes in the brain as well. So um, I don't know. I think butter is less of a risk, to be honest, if you're going to use butter. Last but not least in the crack report, um, after menopause, they say there's certain foods that will uh, decrease breast cancer risk for women. Uh, researchers in Germany uh, looked at uh, diets of postmenopausal women to see if there's any foods that are associated with decreasing the risk of breast cancer. And what they found out was women who ate organic soybeans, sunflower seeds, pumpkin seeds, had a, anywhere from a 17% to 34% decreased risk in breast cancer compared to those people that didn't eat that. So um, they say that these foods have a phytoestrogen content, and these are plant subs substances that, um, that they think bind to estrogen receptors in, in women, and um, it interferes with any kind of cancer-promoting effect um, that women may be exposed to. So flax seeds, sesame seeds, rye, wheat, oat, barley, apricots, strawberries, uh, crunchy vegetables like broccoli and cauliflower, also very good at, you know, reducing your risk of breast cancer. So munch on. And that wraps the quack report. Okay, thank you, Frank. All right, we're going to be talking about, for the first part of the show, um, diet versus drugs. See what we come up with here. Because America, believe it or not, America's at war over health on multiple levels. So the agency, which, you know, the public thinks is the overseer of products for health, is the FDA. So the FDA gives, you know, official approval on food additives, preservatives, toxic drugs, but not really overly involved that much in approving foods, spices, and herbs. So there's a big difference between the FDA's actual function and what the public thinks the FDA actually does. So the FDA does not test any product before it enters the market. So it, it doesn't test food. It doesn't test spices or herbs or supplements or drugs. So the FDA relies on drug companies to test their products and to be truthful with their reports. The FDA reads the reports and says yay or nay. So drugs are not supplements and vice versa. However, there seems to be some efforts that are attempting to cloud this issue. And according to Gretchen Debu, she's the executive director of the Alliance for Natural Health, she gave this analogy when you want to call a supplement a drug. She says it's like calling monopoly money legal currency. And uh, to make matters worse, some officials like the U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch, she's been warning consumers about the dangers of nutritional supplements. So Lynch misguides consumers by stating that the FDA does not test supplements for approval. The truth is the FDA doesn't test anything for approval. So either Lynch is ignorant of how the FDA works or she's intentionally misleading the public. So let's take a look at this war on your supplements. Mm. 
But first, we're going to check this Harvard study. The Alliance for Nutrition Health says uh, Harvard University did a study on the percentages of FDA-approved drugs and their health hazards. So according to the study, prescribed medications are responsible for 1.9 million hospitalizations, 2.74 million serious adverse reactions, and 128,000 deaths each year. In comparison, Americans take about 60 billion doses of dietary supplements annually. So the adverse reactions to supplements were minuscule, in which, you know, people mix their supplements with other medicines or prescription or over-the-counter stuff, and they had a reaction. But for a better perspective, Gretchen DeBue says this. She puts it this way. You are five times more likely to be killed by lightning, 581 times more likely to be killed in a boating accident, and 98,000 times more likely to be killed by an FDA-approved and properly prescribed pharmaceutical drug than from a dietary supplement. So the bigger, more important picture is this, she says. Despite some bad apples, the supplement industry still produces the safest products that humans ingest, end of quote. Now, Gretchen is the executive director for the Alliance for Natural Health. So the comparison is obvious, that the supplement industry manufactures one of the safest products Americans put into their body. So if consumers are taking a whole food supplement and not a fractionalized or synthetic version, well, then the likelihood of any adverse reaction is nearly zero. All right, let's talk about, well, let's just ask the high-risk expert. Let's just go there, you know. There's this whole industry solely committed to evaluating risk and putting a price tag on it. So the need for malpractice insurance was born in 1374 when medical malpractice became a common occurrence in the British courts, in which, you know, a lot of the cases were just dismissed. But malpractice law is supposed to handle fraud or neglect resulting in injury. By 1794, which was five years after President George Washington's inauguration, malpractice lawsuits were being heard in the U.S. courts entering in, um, they entered them in as a breach of contract. So according to JAMA Journal of 2000 and the 1997 Journal for Community Health, the word malpractice comes from the Latin term malapraxis, which was coined by British legal scholar Sir William Blackstone in 1765. So according to Blackstone, a malpractice lawsuit really is claiming a private wrong is really not considered a breach of contract. What it comes down to is failure to do your job in a private capacity. So the medical malpractice insurance industry bases the grounds for damages off the medical standards. And medical standards can be kind of a cloak of protection for medical professionals under these laws. So the premium rate that physicians will pay for their malpractice insurance varies from state to state and from medical specialty to medical specialty. So a physician group can also influence the rates that they pay. However, according to MPMLC network of insurance agents and underwriters, premiums are higher 
in a weak economy. And according to general rates, premium rates, they can range from 20000 to 200000 a year for specialists and surgeons. General practitioners tend to pay less, under 6500 a year. And as you would guess, surgeons are going to be sued at a much higher percentage than your general practitioners. And what about those chiropractors? What kind of premiums do they pay for malpractice insurance? Well, it all depends on how the risk looks to the underwriters, and apparently the risk is relatively low with an average premium of less than 500 a year. There's no malpractice insurance for nutritional experts or herbalists because nutritional therapy or food therapy is not underwritten because the insurance industry said there's little to no risk. So when death certificates start showing up in droves stating death caused by herbs or supplements, well, then you're going to see insurance underwriters line up to cash in. Well, I think we should take a poll, you know. We have over 300 million Americans in the United States, and over half of them take supplements on a daily basis. And according to the Annals of Internal Medicine, they encourage medical professionals to discourage patients from using supplements as a way to preserve their health. They state that there's really no studies to support that vitamins and minerals work. Are they serious? Because there is a ton of research which proves nutrition is the basis for good health. And Dr. Andrew Saul has discussed no fewer than 19 studies proving a strong correlation between supplement use and reduced risk of cardiovascular disease and cancer. So the medical industry knows supplement nutrients positively affect function, and therefore they will say the opposite. A 2013 Gallup poll, um, you know, showed that, you know, the higher the education level of an American and the older the Americans are, the more supplements they seem to take. They also discovered that younger and younger Americans are taking supplements starting at age 18. And what kind of supplements are they taking? Well, Americans are taking mineral, protein, and vitamin supplements. So the poll said that 68% of senior citizens are taking supplements and 50% of people between the ages of 50 to 64 also take supplements. And as the poll pointed out, there's a lot of money at stake, but also the health and lifestyle of Americans is at stake. Now, one thing is certain, nature seems to be on trial. Let me read you this uh, quote from Dr. Andrew Saul. He is the editor of Automolecule Medicine News Service. He says this, NBC's supplement bashing headline article displays an ignorance of clinical nutrition that is difficult to ignore, end of quote. So here is a brief list of studies published in prominent medical journals that show the scientific evidence that supplements have a positive impact, improve, and even protect our health. So JAMA 2012 said multivitamin supplements were found to reduce cancer risk by 8%. The International Journal for Cancer in 2011 said increased uh, vitamin D serum levels associated with 15% reduction of colon rectal cancer and also 11% reduction in breast cancer incidence. 
The American Heart Journal of 2011 said an increase in vitamin C was associated with a 9% reduction in heart failure mortality. And they said an estimated 216,000 lives could be spared each year with a little vitamin C. Also, International Journal of Cancer 2011 said, while the NBC declared that vitamin E does no good at, at all at preventing cancer or heart disease, this study found that natural vitamin E decreases prostate tumor formation by a respectable 75%. And the Internal National Journal of Cancer uh, 2008 said natural vitamin E reduces lung cancer risk by 61%. So there's studies out there, science. Yeah, it's there. Well, what we have is we're waging war against disease here, right? Nutrition. Uh, when we eat a healthy diet and we use supplements when we have to, well, we're defending ourselves against disease. So an industry that is supported by treating disease will want to limit their risk of losing revenue and do whatever is necessary to prevent that. Therefore, this misinformation, the lies, and the scientific fraud to protect their bottom line, no surprise at all. And to anyone who thinks that the medical industry wouldn't do such a thing, I say, you know, just open your Bible and read 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all evil. And if the tobacco industry can lie about the safety of their product, then so can the pharmaceutical and medical industry. So then I would say, you know, ask yourself if your creator would want you to rely on the pharmaceutical industry to be healthy or on his foods and his medicinal plants. Because God cannot lie. And he promises in Psalms 104.14 that herbs are here for the service of man. So we have a choice, and I think it's to thrive. My choice is I'm going to thrive. You know, and I wonder why people settle for the black box warning on prescriptions rather than tapping into the power of a better lifestyle and medicinal herbs. If nature is going to, you know, continue to be on trial by the world, well, you know, I plan on being a witness for nature. So when we set all those physics and chemistry and biology aside, we really only have one choice, and that's to trust in God's creation and to seek out what he created to help our bodies thrive. So it's our job to have wisdom and discernment and to do our due diligence to protect what God gave us. And I truly believe that it also grieves God and the Holy Spirit when we expose our bodies to toxins. So when the Creator asks you one day, what you did to protect your temple of the Holy Spirit, that's your body, from toxins, the only correct answer is everything I could. So call the experts in organic whole food herbal formulas. They specialize in toxin removal and immune boosting. That would be Apothecary Herbs. Their number is toll-free at 866-229-3663, 866-229-3663. They will send you a free product catalog, very informative, educational. Their website, if you want to visit them online, is thepowerherbs.com. That's where your healthcare options just became endless, thepowerherbs.com, because it's all about putting the power back in your hands, putting you back in the driver's seat. You're in charge of your health and your destiny, and it's 
not as intimidating as you think. Once you've got the proper tools and the education on how to use them, uh, you know, God does the rest. It's his chemistry. He knows what he's doing. And his herbs, his medicinal herbs, have power to them. He, he promises that. So thepowerherbs.com, if you're serious about herbs, you need apothecary herbs, and they will educate you along the way. So if you're on the website, don't forget, sign up for their um, free online newsletters. They have a couple of them there. Uh, the Health Quest goes out on Friday, and the um, and the American, let's see, what's the other one that we have, Frank? Health Quest and uh, American Survival. That's it. That's, that one goes out on Tuesday. So uh, sign up for that, and they're free. You can share them with your family and friends and, and be empowered further, you know. Share the, share the information. It's awesome. Okay, so we're going to be talking about fleas because we're in that season. We are getting there, and uh, flea and ticks, people are calling for flea and tick products, and um, a lot of pet owners just not really happy with a lot of the chemical stuff that they get at the vet seems to have adverse reactions with their pets. So uh, they're looking for alternatives there. Uh, and there are reports that fleas have kind of exploded in lots of areas of the United States and even in Europe. Um, lots of areas in the U.S. are reporting flea problems, especially the southeastern states, uh, San Diego, California, parts of Connecticut and Pennsylvania, all the ways uh, the northern, eastern Pennsylvania, Connecticut have their problems once they warm up a little bit. Now, Dr. Michael Dryden, he's professor of veterinarian parasitology, at Kansas State University. He's called uh, affectionately Dr. Flea. He knows a lot about fleas. Uh, he says vets doubt the efficiency of their flea treatments because they are not working as well as they did 15 years ago. You know, it's kind of the same thing with, you know, termite uh, products. You know, they use to treat for termites not working. They have to switch it up. Uh, so Dr. Christine Kane, professor of dermatology at the University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinarian Medicine, said that the flea outbreaks can occur on pets being treated for fleas. Now, how is that possible? Your pet's getting chemically treated and he's got fleas. What's up with that? Well, we're told that as the warm weather rainy days set in, there's going to be a flea boom. Uh-oh. Fleas multiply quickly. Health experts in major cities are concerned about a plague outbreak, you know, you know, like bubonic, because that's what fleas carry. Uh-oh. So uh, rock squirrel flea <laughs> is primary vector for plague in Colorado. And we'll be right back with more.
dropping life into the original medicine. Herbalist Wendy Wilson will be right back. count high, half of all men over 50 have an enlarged prostate. You can shrink your prostate without harmful drugs or risky surgery. The secret to healing the prostate is to cleanse the prostate and the liver. Call Apothecary Herbs to ask about the prostate kit for a comprehensive way to heal and soothe your prostate. Educate yourself on how easy it can be to disinfect, cleanse, and restore your prostate glands. Call Apothecary Herbs for the prostate kit and successfully reduce swelling, inflammation, dissolve stones, and cleanse the blood to obtain the results you need. Money-back guarantee with every purchase. Call the experts in organ cleansing. Call Apothecary Herbs now for the prostate kit and empower yourself. Toll-free 866-229-3663 or international callers 704-875-8010. That's toll-free 866-229-3663 or visit the web at thepowerherbs.com. Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. Henry Ford, the automobile. And herbalist Wendy Wilson? Well, discover for yourself. Listen to Herb Talk Live. heart condition and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. obligations or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out? When life is too much to handle, use Apothecary Herbs Emotional Stress Formula. Feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope. Complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee. You've waited long enough. Call Apothecary Herbs now. Toll free 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom
about fleas, how to get rid of them, uh, how to understand their cycles and, you know, just deal with it. Um, right before the break, we were talking about Colorado. They, they have the rock squirrel there that gets fleas, primary vector for bubonic plague there in Colorado. And the, the song, Ring Around the Rosie, they think is, uh, which you think is a nursery rhyme, they think history goes back to the 1700s, and it may originated during the Black Plague. Depending on the plague bacteria, the skin can have a red discoloring to it. Now, worldwide, there are like 1,800 different species of fleas. And according to buginfo.com, the largest species of flea prefers mountain beavers, and it's a third of an inch long. It's a big flea. Glad the parasites like the mountain animals instead of the domesticated ones. So if you live in Colorado, be aware that the state houses 80 different flea species and more than any other state, actually. So Colorado also has the flea that likes to bite humans, even though they are found on wild animals like skunks, foxes, and coyotes. So when the wild animals abandon their dens, the fleas scatter. They try to find a food source, and they usually jump on domesticated pets. So cat fleas can multiply on both dogs and cats. And the states that are most common for flea problems are Texas, California, and Florida. So let's see what we can learn about fleas and how we get rid of them. So the fleas have these cycles. Their life cycle is brief, but it's busy. Uh, the average flea can live from a few weeks to several months. They emerge from their cocoon within one second, and they inhabit its host and are feeding on it in three seconds. So female fleas lay about 2,000 eggs during their lifespan or about 50 eggs a day. And the incubation time can be just a few days to a few weeks, depending on the conditions. So in ideal conditions, a pair of fleas can produce 2 trillion fleas in about nine months. So the flea eggs can fall off animals into carpets, bedding, cracks in between floorboards. And after they emerge, it can they can jump to find their host. So in the larval stage, an immature flea can eat the feces of adult fleas, the dried blood, for about 18 days. And then fleas can then jump between 8 to 34 inches high. That's about 150 times their size or the equivalent of a human jumping over 1,000 feet. So fleas can also jump horizontally and an average of 13 inches. And some people wonder how fleas can actually navigate all through that hair and fur. Well, they have three pairs of legs and have hair-like bristles on them to help them maneuver uh, aside from the use of their back legs for jumping. And so what do they typically eat? Well, fleas like to feast on blood, as you know, and they can suck up to 15 times their body weight in blood every day. Female fleas especially need a steady diet of blood to support their egg-laying capabilities. However, fleas can survive several months without a blood supply. And they are pretty hardy as far as a parasite. They can survive freezing conditions. I didn't know that. I thought once you get a frost, that's it. But, mm. Well, so when we see our cute little puppies and our kittens in the pet store window, we really don't like to think about fleas or any financial commitment that would come along with the health care of the pet. We don't think about that. We just think about how cute they are. 
So the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals says that the low ball price range for pet owners that they're going to spend in a 15-year span on their pet is about $9,400 to $14,000. I believe that. So the larger dogs definitely going to cost more. Uh, They're more prone to ligament injuries and requiring surgery. And Americans spend $48 billion on pet food every year. That's according to Pet Products Association. So the recession, when it hit the pet sector, when it hit during 2009 through 2010, pet owners had to cut back on their pet expenses. They cut back by 16%. Pharmaceutical pet supplies, you know, well, they can, they can be very expensive, and veterinarian care rose by 4% over inflation. So the pharmaceutical flea and tick prevention products are expensive and very toxic. On average, depending on the size of the pet, the drugs can range from $39 to $80 on top of a vet visit. So most pet owners, what they do is they search for these products online to save money, and they buy them from overseas at about a 30% saving. Now, according to the National Resources Defense Council, the chemicals that they use in the pet flea and tick products are alarmingly toxic to pets and humans. The chemicals are known as tetralarvophosphorus, which is a proxiper. Uh, young children shouldn't be exposed to these chemicals. However, these chemicals are often used in your flea and tick pet collars, sprays, and powders, and your kids are going to get in contact with it. So pets can actually lick these chemicals right off of their, um, their bodies, their collars, And the chemicals are a nerve toxin that affects the pet and human nervous system as well as the fleas. So if pets get too much of these chemicals, it can cause nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, wheezing, sweating, and watery eyes. If the pet becomes poisoned by the chemicals, the symptoms to watch for are muscle twitching, drooling, seizures, and death. And according to the Humane Society of the U.S., hundreds of pet owners report pet deaths from flea and tick chemicals in pet products and medications every year. Studies are reporting that long-term exposure to these chemicals in similar doses or small doses can produce a cancer risk to your pet. According to the state of California, Proxfer is classified as a human carcinogen, but it's in your flea and tick products. So if you or your pet are exposed to these chemicals classified as an organic phosphate, um, it can offer significant risk to neurodevelopment problems, which include hyperactivity, learning disabilities, attention deficit disorder, and impulsive behaviors in humans, and that's according to the Journal of Pediatrics 2012 issue. Now, in 2009, the Natural Resources Defense Council published some research on the flea and tick collars. Um, The chemicals found uh, in these collars, uh, just within a three-day exposure to the chemical agents, um, exceed the EPA's acceptable dose level for toddlers. And the EPA estimates that young children spend two hours a day with their pets, and it does not include sleeping with their pets. So parents and pet owners need to decide what are the acceptable risks associated with the flea and tick products. Now, the animals that are the unfortunate hosts for your fleas 
can have health conditions. Serious infestations of fleas can produce anemia. Puppies and kittens would be at a higher risk of anemia than other infections, such as tapeworms. Now, if animals eat the fleas, they can get worms. Other signs that pets exhibit from flea problems are hair loss, scabies and scabs, chewed skin, and what are called hot spots, which are serious lesions on the skin indicating an infection. Well, what are some natural solutions? Well, fleas are an ancient problem, and our ancestors would use natural plants to repel the pests. They would wash clothes and bedding in garlic and thyme to help repel these parasites. Essential oils were also used, such as tea tree oil, citronella, rosemary, peppermint, and eucalyptus. Some pet odors will feed their pet brewer's yeast or other, uh, maybe garlic, to penetrate the blood supply and make the blood less appealing to the fleas and ticks. One pet owner told me that she sprinkled garlic powder with no salt on her pet and it cut down on the flea bite. Another said they used diatomaceous earth and applied it to their fur and that also helped. So vacuuming the home helps, but use a vacuum that does not use bags or the fleas can escape and reinfest your home. So I use a rainbow vacuum which has a water basin and all the dirt goes right into the water. So if we had any fleas, all those fleas would not be swimming. So when you finish cleaning, you just flush away all that dirt, pollen, and any fleas you may have vacuumed up. Uh, now, what do you do outside your dwelling? Well, when you're treating your outside of your home, remember that you want to protect your flea predators that eat fleas like your ladybugs and dirt worms. So don't be spraying stuff that kills them. Now, if you're worried about your pet acquiring anemia from blood-sucking fleas, then, you know, use some super fortification plant nutrition. Um, there's a product called Power Greens for Pet, and it's uh, got some beetroot in there to help uh, power up your pet so they don't get anemia. It helps them rebuild their blood supply. Also, they uh, folks at Apothecary Herbs that have the Power Greens stuff, they also have the natural flea and tick collars and shampoo, which has the eucalyptus and essential oils to repel fleas, but it's not irritating to the pet's skin. Uh, so these are chemical-free, plus uh, it makes your pet smell really clean and fresh. So the collars will last about three months, but if your pet likes to swim, you have to replace it a little sooner. Uh, and, and these are not going to be, you know, uh, chemical toxins to toddlers, kids, your pet, um, and it helps repel the parasites as well. So it's a really nice alternative safe solution for that. I use them on uh, my Labrador. And you're talking about a lot of real estate for fleas. You know what I'm saying? So we don't like fleas. We don't have fleas. Of course, we use the natural uh, oils and flea and tick products there that they have at thepowerherbs.com. Very reasonably priced. Uh, flea collars about $7. Shampoo's about 8 uh, So check that out, thepowerherbs.com. It's under the Herbs for Pets section. And if you want to give them a call, their number is toll-free at 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. Or visit them there at thepowerherbs.com. All right. So um, you got the flea and tick thing covered, thankfully, and uh, non-toxic solutions to everyday problems there. 
And so now we're going to move along because we've got a few minutes. We're going to talk about antioxidants. Um, we've been talking about antioxidants uh, for a while. We've talked about them before. Um, it helps us. It helps our body. It protects us. It strengthens us against killer viruses and bacteria. Uh, it really does power up our own immune system. It strengthens and fortifies it. So antioxidants are a good thing. So each day that, you know, goes by, a lot of the scientific minds are trying to discover what the ancients already knew regarding living healthy. Of course, you know, the ancients didn't have scientific terms to go attached to why these things worked, but they just did. So our ancient ancestors may not have known what a free radical is, but they do know which plants made them feel better and stronger against disease. They had no idea that the plants and herbs that they were eating were rich in antioxidants. So the term antioxidant is just what it means, against oxidization. So foods with chemical antioxidants will, in, will inhibit the destruction of um, living tissue that is caused by oxidization. So what chemicals give antioxidants their power? Well, it's usually enzymes, vitamins, and minerals that you find in your food sources. So enzymes and vitamins are the way to go if you want to get rid of free radicals. So your antioxidants are very important in the development of a strong immune system, having a strong defense against killer superbugs and plagues even. So remember that. Well, let's talk about the theory. Because in the 1950s, Dr. Denham Harmon was the first to seriously link accumulative free radical damage to disease and premature aging. A nutrient problem America was faced with uh, that the government's recommending, you know, the daily allowance, the recommended daily allowance. Well, he saw that that was inadequate. So one of the problems is that that daily allowance system, well, it provides people, it just divides people into two nutrient categories, those below 50 years of age and those above 50 years of age. So do you think that someone who is like 90 would require the same nutrition as a 51-year-old? Well, Dr. Art Euling has stated that there are scientific studies linking free radicals to a decline in immune system function. So the elderly may not be eating well, and their immune system is not getting old. It's just not strong enough. They're not getting the nutrients that the immune system needs to help protect them. So there's no doubt that antioxidant nutrition can enhance the human immune function and supercharge it. All right, let's talk about chemicals helping us fight. There are several ways that we can wage war against disease. Our bodies encounter foreign matter every day. The job that our immune system has is to neutralize any foreign invaders that are threats to our well-being and dispose of them. So when our bodies do not get the nutrition it needs through vitamins and enzymes and minerals and so forth, it's not as able to stop the chain reaction of what is called a free radical. So this is a transfer, basically, of electrons or hydrogen to an oxidizing agent. All this can occur in your cells and can damage or kill a cell. So your antioxidant nutrition in foods and herbs will terminate that replication of the free radical, save your cells, which science declare as a consequence 
of disease, free radical, is the consequence of disease. Well, antioxidants are really powerful. And they're so powerful, they're a natural preservative. And guess what? The gasoline manufacturers will add antioxidants to gasoline to preserve the formation of, to keep gums from forming, which could clog the engine. Likewise, we don't want to gum up our own bodies and make us targets for things like heart disease or neurological disease, autoimmune disease, cancer, cataracts, macular degeneration, and so on. So what are some of the major hitters? Well, in the 1950s, research discovered that the most potent antioxidants as a human preservative were, were vitamin A, vitamin C, and vitamin E. Now, to be clear, we're talking about natural sources, not synthetic ones. So biochemistry was actually revolutionized by this discovery of the influence that these nutrients had on living organisms. So the industrial world will use antioxidants to preserve their products, their gas, their tires, their unsaturated fats. And that's great. But you want to use antioxidants to preserve you and to rebuild and boost your immune system and stay healthy. So here again, science knows vitamins, nutrition, supplements can have a positive, meaningful impact on our health. And when they come out and state in the news, they don't. Well, we know what they're doing. They're protecting the pharmaceutical company's bottom line. So how many antioxidants are we talking about? How many antioxidants have you in your system really is going to depend on your lifestyle. So antioxidants are classified into a couple of categories. There's the water-soluble antioxidants found in your blood and in your lipid solution antioxidants designed to protect your cell membranes. And your body can make antioxidants, but it really needs the right nutrition to do that. So foods and herbs with selenium and zinc will help the body build your antioxidant reserves. And this is why a lot of people say you need zinc uh, in order to, uh, you know, for colds and flu. You know, this is one of the reasons, antioxidants. So these minerals will help the body utilize your antioxidant enzymes. So that's important. Well, let's look at your selenium and zinc foods, okay? You can tap into the foods that assist the body to make antioxidants. Uh, foods contain selenium and zinc, things like cashews, kidney beans, salmon, uh, haddock, wheat germ, uh, beef, turkey, pumpkin seeds, pecans, pinto beans, walnuts, eggs, peanuts, oatmeal, almonds, anchovies. I mean, you, you have a lot of food groups here that you can tap into. Other foods and general foods that also contain a lot of antioxidants are your fruits and vegetables, your whole grains, your nuts, your seeds, your lentils, and get this, even chocolate, dark chocolate. So I love chocolate. Yes, I do. Don't eat a lot of it, though. Uh, green tea and vegetables um, also, any dark green uh, leafy vegetables will have antioxidants, as well as your yellow and orange pigment uh, fruits and vegetables. Lots of antioxidant nutrition there. So uh, definitely go for, you know, uh, all, all those wonderful, uh, like oranges and mangoes and things like that. All right. What about herbs? Are there any herbs that can help us out? 
Well, way before microscopes and labs were created, there were the ancient healers like Pitney and Elder and Galen who wrote about the healing power of plants. So today we know that these plants are supercharged. Guess what? Yep, antioxidants. They can help us tap into just what we need, supercharge us just at a certain time when we're sick. Um, in ancient Rome, they used a lot of herbs. Um, they used milk thistle, ginkgo, ginseng, red raspberry, cayenne, echinacea, astragalus root, garlic, onion, ginger, horseradish, and a lot of many other herbs. Just There's so many, you know, but you can tap into the medicinal power of herbs. Herbs are here for the service of man. Don't forget that. God said that. Now, it's really interesting that modern science has focused on milk thistle and ginkgo regarding antioxidants. Ginkgo is said to be the world's oldest tree species, and science has studied these herbs for years, trying to unlock its secrets. So let's talk about your immune system for a second, because when you have fat and oxidized fat, kind of deadly to your organs of the human body, especially your liver. Researchers like Dr. William Lee have studied that when you use milk thistle, it is a proactive way to help prevent fat and poisonous substances from hurting your liver. So you don't want a fatty liver, then you definitely, according to Dr. Lee, you need milk thistle. It prevents the fatty liver. So scientific studies have shown that milk thistle is very effective at detoxifying the liver tissue. So far, far, far essential, more uh, chemical nutrition has been identified in milk thistle to accomplish this than any any other product uh, because of the silymarin, which is the antioxidant in your milk thistle. Uh, originally, it's indigenous to the Mediterranean region, but it's also now cultivated all over the world. The early Europeans would also use seeds of milk thistle plant as coffee substitutes. So if you have, you know, prescription drugs, let's say you have a heart condition, you're taking drugs for infections, arthritis, blood pressure, any other chronic disease, then you're also going to have suppressed immune system function. So your antioxidant foods and your herbs with antioxidants are going to help revitalize an immune system and uh, pick up function there. Estimated between 75% to 85% of Americans aren't eating enough fresh fruits and vegetables for their antioxidant need. So a good example of what free radicals can do to your cells is if you cut an apple and expose it to oxygen and then watch it turn brown. Hopefully it's, you know, an organic one. It's not been a genetically modified apple that can last for months. <laughs> it still looks like you just cut it. But, you know, the oxygen will quickly rot that apple, and that's exactly what um, free radicals do inside the body. It, it affects your tissues that way. It breaks the things down, and uh, it affects you. So um, other things that can cause a free radical byproduct are uh, things you're exposed to, like chemicals, toxic chemicals, dust, mold, ex if you get too much sunlight even. And uh, water and air pollution definitely are in that mix as well. So your diet, 
along with your immune system support herbs, are going to play a huge role in protecting you, giving you those giving you these antioxidants to protect you from free radical damage, killer viruses, bacteria, even plagues. You know, if you got some antioxidants, you got a better chance. So who knew that foods and herbs provide powerful anti-germotic, antiviral protection, right? So, well, God knew. He said herbs are meat in Genesis 1, 30 and 31. That means they're powerful. He also said herbs are here for the service of man in Psalms 104.14. So your antioxidant herbs and your foods are going to be a huge benefit. They're going to help you through the allergy season even. So if you're interested, call the folks at Apothecary Herbs. Ask about their antioxidant-rich herbs like their milk thistle, their heart formula, their herbal eyewash, their ginsengs, their brain concentrate with ginkgo, the Echinacea Deluxe for sinusitis. Uh, they're all-in-one uh, tonic to help you through just about everything. I mean, it's a straggly's root. Uh, it's, it's, it's endless. Their line of uh, antioxidant immune-boosting products are endless. So give them a call. Get that free product catalog, 866-229-3663. Or visit them online at thepowerherbs.com. 866-229-3663. Get a free product catalog. Man, that hour went quick. The information presented is not intended to diagnose, treat, prevent, or cure disease. So seek medical advice from a licensed medical physician, if you dare, before using any product or therapy. I'm your herbalist, Wendy Wilson. Until next time, be well. have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, and Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family.
Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Alfred Adisk, and this is Financial Survival, our Wednesday evening program for the 13th day of April, year of our Lord, 2016. Our guest tonight is James Corbett. James should be joining us after the first break and calling in from Japan. While we wait for James to arrive, uh, here's the market report. Yesterday, we had a great day in gold. (laughs) The day, not so good. Gold is down $13.30 today to $1,243.40 per ounce. Silver was up two cents to sixteen thirty-one. Platinum was down a buck to one thousand and four. Palladium was down two bucks to five hundred and forty-eight dollars per ounce. <clears throat> Look at the rest of the markets. Dow Jones is up 187 points to 17,908, closing in on the 18,000 mark. NASDAQ was up 75 to 4,947, closing in on the 5,000 mark. Uh, New York Stock Exchange is up 120 points to 10,360. Standard & Poor's was up 21 points to 2,083. Uh, U.S. dollar index, and this is the one that's interesting to me. Well, let's do crude oil first. Crude oil is uh, in the aftermarket, at least down 56 cents, but it's over 40 bucks. It's $41.20 per barrel, and it wasn't all that long ago. It was down to $26 per barrel, and we are left to wonder what's going to happen to crude oil. Is it going higher? Is it going to fall back down? Um, some people predict crude oil is going to 85 before the end of this year. Other people predict that it'll fall down below 26 and not so long from now. So crude oil is a mystery. I think for the moment, I don't think crude's going to go a lot, uh, going a lot higher. And if anything, it's likely to go lower because so far as I know, the supply of crude continues to exceed the demand by quite a lot. And as long as that's true, I don't see any foundation for believing that the price is going up. And it's gone up from, again, 26 to 41, but I don't know that it's going to go much higher. We'll watch and see. <clears throat> the index that interests me is the U.S. dollar index. And I've explained this in the past, but it's worth to me it's worth doing again. For about 18 months, out of the last two years, the U.S. dollar index has been going up and up and up and got up to where it was almost at the 100 mark. And when the index rises, that's evidence of deflation. The dollar is growing more valuable. Now, the problem I had with that, as I saw it happen, I could I read, the, I read the, the U.S. dollar index, and I, you know, I can follow it with a reasonable amount of understanding. And I could not understand why the government of the United States was allowing this to happen. They keep talking about they want inflation. They want 2% inflation, and yet they allowed the dollar to deflate, as measured on the U.S. dollar index, from perhaps around where it is now, 94 on up to a 100 over a course of about 18 months. That's contrary to the best interest of the United States in large measure because deflation is ruinous for debtors. 
They have to repay their debts with more valuable dollars. Almost anyone who bought a home in the last, uh, you know, say, more than 10 years ago, and probably even then, they were encouraged to take out a mortgage and perhaps take out, buy a bigger home than they could otherwise afford because they were encouraged, they were assured that there would be inflation. And thanks to inflation, they'd be able to pay off their mortgage debt with cheaper dollars. By the time the 30-year mortgage expired, if you had a mortgage for $1,000 a month in the beginning, by the time you got down to 30 years, you'd be paying the equivalent of who knows. <clears throat> I don't know the math on it necessarily, but you could take a guess in terms of purchasing power. At the end of that 30-year mortgage, you might be paying the equivalent of something like 250 bucks in purchasing power. You're still sending $1,000, nominal $1,000, but... The purchasing power, as compared to when you borrowed the money, might be only $250 for a $1,000 monthly mortgage payment. We were encouraged. Inflation would help us to repay our debts with cheaper dollars. When the government allows deflation, the, the converse is true. The, you, pay, you repay your debts after a period of deflation with more valuable dollars. You get a mortgage for $1,000 a month. When the time comes 30 years later, you could be paying back $1,200, $1,300 a month in terms of purchasing power. Right? Government is the biggest debtor in the world, the United States government. That means inflation is absolutely in the interests of the government. And it also means that deflation is anathema. They should never have allowed deflation to take place just as a matter of self-interest. It causes the government to repay its debt with more valuable dollars. They shouldn't tolerate that, and yet they did. It took me a while to figure it out. What I believe happened is that the United States government, when we went through roughly 18 months of deflation as measured on the U.S. dollar index, they allowed it to happen because the U.S. dollar index is like a teeter-totter. On one end of the teeter-totter, we have the United States. On the other end of the teeter-totter, we have six currencies from foreign countries. The euro, the yen, the yuan, no, the yuan's not in there. Euro, yen, Swedish kroner, I can't recall all the, but basically European currencies and, 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 Jap and Japanese. And because of the teeter-totter relationship on the U.S. dollar index, when we have deflation, they have inflation. And Japan and Europe have been screaming to create more inflation to somehow stimulate their economy. And they haven't had much success. I think what happened during the 18 months we saw of deflation on the U.S. dollar index is that the government of the United States agreed that we would accept an attempt to absorb for some period of time, deflation, even knowing that it would be <clears throat> contrary to the interests of our government, contrary to the interests of our debtors, we would absorb inflation, and we did it as a kind of self-sacrifice in order to help Japan and Europe. Can't prove it, don't know it to be true, but that's my theory, and I'm sticking to it. Recently, however, in the last couple of months, We've seen the U.S. dollar index fall, got up close to 100, 
Now it's back down to 90. Uh, well, we are currently almost at 95. It was actually down to 93.95 or thereabouts just in the last day. Um, that's evidence that the dollar has been inflating for the last several months. It's also evidence that the government of the United States has said, enough, we can't make any more self-sacrifices. We've tried to carry Japan, we tried to carry Europe by creating circumstances where they could have inflation, which would theoretically stimulate their economy, while we had some deflation, which in theory would destimulate our economy. And somebody in government just said, enough, enough, we gave you your shot. I'm sorry if you didn't make it, but now we're going back and we're going to have inflation in this country. Or at least that's my theory. Is it true? Well, I don't know. I can't say. And today is the first the first day uh, that we've seen evidence contradicts my theory. It contradicts my theory. This is the first day we've seen a big jump in the U.S. dollar index. It's up almost a point in the last 24 hours. And it's the first real evidence that they're going they're going to try to restore some deflation over the last couple of months. And so we'll watch and see if this a fluke or have the powers that be have they decided, okay, US dollar is gonna to have to go back into deflation. So the other six currencies on the other end of the teeter-totter, they can have inflation and hopefully stimulate particularly the Japanese and the European economies. Um, I don't know, but again, interesting to me. The U.S. dollar index, interesting to me. And one other point for what it's worth. <clears throat> the U.S. dollar index measures inflation and deflation in the dollar in relationship to half a dozen foreign currencies. The deflation that we saw on the U.S. dollar index takes place at the international level. It is entirely possible and perhaps even observable that while, in, while deflation was taking place at the international level, as measured by the U.S. dollar index, we could still have had inflation at the domestic level within the borders of this country. In other words, we could see, see prices going up due to inflation within the United States and yet see the value, the purchasing power of the dollar um, or the, the, the prices denominated in dollars going down on the international market. It's confusing. <clears throat> and why do we have that confusion? We have it because we have a system that is crazy. We have it because we have adopted, we've stepped into the fool's paradise. We People in positions of power said, by gosh, we've got a money tree here. What is it? It's fiat currency. It's a debt-based monetary system. And we don't need gold. We don't need silver anymore. We can just write this stuff up. We can spin our currency out of thin air. And the idea may have sounded brilliant. It sounded brilliant to people back in the 1930s and on through, which as we slowly transitioned, we got off gold in 1933, got off silver by 1968, got off gold on the international market, 1971. The currency became pure fiat. We were kind of cooking frogs, moving from slowly from place to place. 
And somebody thought it would be a brilliant idea, or maybe they thought from the beginning it would be a devastating and treacherous idea. But in any case, we adopted it, and it is an absurd idea. Insofar as people believe that worthless pieces of paper can supplant, replace, and serve as real money. And they can't. And although they work, I've seen one report that said there's been 1,275 instances in the history of man where governments have tried to implement a fiat currency. And 1,270 of them have failed, blown up in everybody's face. There's half a dozen that are still functioning, including the U.S. dollar, because they have been recently created. The dollar, the yen, the euro, right? These are all fiat currencies, but they're relatively new. Well, when we embrace these fiat currencies, we essentially said we don't need gold and silver. We don't need real money anymore. All we need is monopoly money. We can get millions or billions from Parker Brothers. All they have to do is print this stuff up and we'll pretend it's money. Well, it works for a while. But eventually the absurdity of trying to equate monopoly money with gold and silver causes people to do things that are just flat out stupid. You embrace an irrational premise and it will lead you to conclusions that are also irrational. Like... The idea that we need to inflate the dollar, we need to inflate the dollar more and more and more to stimulate the economy. If we, We've already inflated the dollar to where it's worth less than a nickel in terms of purchasing power as compared to what it was back in 1971. How can we be better off by destroying the value of our own currency? And where is this going to lead us? If we've gone from where the dollar was worth 100 cents to where it's worth 90 cents to 80 cents to 70, 60, 50, 20, uh, 10, down to 5, what's going to happen when it's worth only 4 cents in terms of purchasing power? What's going to happen when the purchasing power drops to 3 cents and then to 2 cents and then to 1 cent and finally to nearly zero? Well, we're going to go into hyperinflation at best. And we will inevitably see the dollar die. And when it does, there will be casualties spread out on the ground as if somebody detonated a nuclear weapon. It'll be devastating. When is it going to happen? Don't know. But we've gone from 100, a dollar having a purchasing power of 100 cents back in 1971 to where it now is 90, 80, 70, 60, 50, 40, 30, 20, 10, 5. Right? How much longer can it take? We've lost 95% of the value of the dollar and over a matter of, what, 29, 39, 45 years? It implies if the same rate continues, we're going to lose another 2% this year and another 2% the year after that, and pretty soon we're right, a dollar's worth nothing. What happens then? Chaos, collapse, economic calamity. Um... So, we have adopted this idiocy. It has led us to some bizarre and strange, but once you adopt these idiot premises, they will lead you logically to irrational conclusions, including the idea that we can just push the dollar down to where it's worth a penny in terms of purchasing power. Yeah, it can be done. It's called hyperinflation, but it can be done. 
it worked for a while, but eventually, like like Zimbabwe and the Weimar Republic, it's going to blow up, and there's going to be chaos to follow. Negative interest rates, in my opinion, are a consequence of of adopting that fundamental, irrational position that we can take pieces of paper and use them as money. We can use them as gold or silver. Why? What's the problem? Why can't we use paper instead of gold and silver? Why can't we use digital currency instead of gold or silver? And the answer is that government cannot resist the temptation to spin paper currency out of thin air. All they have to do is print it. It's like giving a checkbook to an irresponsible child and, and pretending to be surprised when she writes a check for toys and for dresses and for a new car and then a new home and just keeps on as long as she can write those checks and anybody will cash them, she's golden. But there's not enough money in the bank to back them up. And sooner or later, that catches up with them. And when it does, when it catches up with the little girl who's been writing all these checks, she's in big trouble. And the same thing is true with central banks and governments that have been issuing these non-sufficient fund checks we call fiat dollars. Sooner or later, they're going to catch up with them, and there is going to be help to pay. What do you do about it? Get yourself some real money. Get yourself some gold. Get yourself some silver. We're going to take a break for a couple commercial announcements. When I return, James Corbett should be here calling in from Japan. Please stay tuned. condition and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the three wsthepowerherbscom Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it, It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. 
Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. I'm Alfred Adisk, and this is Financial Survival. Our guest is James Corbett from the Corbett Report. James is generally here on uh, Wednesday night when we interview him, and for Thursday when the program is rebroadcast uh, during the daytime show. Part of the reason we do that, of course, is because it's it's breakfast time for James in Japan, and it's... Uh, <laughs> It's bedtime for me here in in Texas, and we have to kind of make a little accommodation in order so we can be on the same clock. So, James, how's your breakfast? Uh, Actually, we're heading on towards lunchtime. It's coming up towards noon, so I might get a little hungry during the interview. Might be. Well, it may be daylight. We have do do we do we have daylight savings time in Japan? Does that explain? We do not. Don't well. That's probably that's probably why I'm confused about this. We've seen a report from Reuters. This is we touched on this last week. IMF warns Brexit could deal blow to global economy. According to the International Monetary Fund, Britain could deal a damaging blow to the fragile global economy if it votes to leave the European Union at its June 23rd referendum. If England, well, first, what are the chances that England will in fact move out of the uh, European Union, distance itself from the European Union on June 23rd. What are the chances that's going to happen? If it does happen, will the, U- the European Union be badly damaged? Will it really be badly damaged, or will it be just inconvenienced? And finally, will other nations follow Britain's example? A three-part question. I think there was a lot embedded in there. All right, let's pick it apart. Um, hmm. Will it, as far as what the IMF is saying, will it affect the global economy? I think that's more of the scaremongering and hype that we've seen that we saw, for example, when Scotland was talking about getting, uh, ex- exiting from the United Kingdom or detaching itself from Great Britain. I-, I think that was a lot of hype and scaremongering and fear that was used to try to swing the vote towards the globalist side. You've got to be in the EU in order to be able to do anything productively in the economy. I think that's a load of nonsense. 
And I th- I'm pretty sure the global economy will find a way to, to you know, power through if Britain is no longer part of the EU, whatever that really means. I mean, it's not even part of the Eurozone. It's just part of the European Union. So I don't expect, I mean, there would obviously be things to work out in terms of how does this affect trade deals and, and uh, borders and customs and all of that. But I, I'm sure there wouldn't be, a, you know, an, an overnight grinding to a halt of all trade. So I think that's a lot of scaremongering. But I mean, will it affect, will it affect the EU, yes, certainly. It would have a dramatic effect, I think, because Britain, although not really a founding kind of central member, I think the EU is more built upon the you know French, Dutch, German, Northern European axis than it is the, the British outlier. But still, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty big nation, a pretty important economy, a pretty important nation diplomatically and politically, militarily. So I'm sure that it would have a, a pretty important effect. And it would have a psychological effect, I think, on the rest of the European Union. Would it cause other people? It would certainly embolden other people in other parts of the EU who are interested in getting out of the EU. And it would certainly be a very, very shining example for them about how to do that. So it would have some pretty big effects that way. I just think that the economic side of it is uh, is being overblown in order to try to shift people's opinion. What about England itself? Is this simply a psychological reaction? The English people may, may not want to be part of the European Union, and so they're likely to vote out, vote themselves out on an emotional basis. Or will England actually be, if he, if the European Union stands to lose, does England stand to gain if it walks out of the European Union? Well, I, I think so. And maybe I'm biased because I think decentralization and getting away from centralized globalist bodies is uh, is for the benefit of humanity and everyone. But uh, but I think it is uh, in the interests of the UK people to, at the very least, try to set their policy, economic and, and legislation and, and laws, at, at least within the borders of their own country. I mean, why go to Brussels to, to decide what their trade policies and all of that should be. So I, I think it is to their benefit. And I think a lot of British people, a lot of, uh, a lot of Brits understand this. I mean, this is, it, there's never been a great love for the European Union in England. It's just that a lot of people, eh, you know, you go along to get along. Certain business people, I'm sure, see it, uh, it being in their business interest for, uh, for Britain to be part of it. But uh, I think the average person on the street has no great love for the European Union as some sort of institution. And Certainly in recent years, UKIP, the UK Independence Party, has tapped into that and has really started to galvanize opinions to make it to the point where it's at least politically feasible to hold this type of referendum. And it's it's going to be at least close. Um, I I want to be optimistic that the British people really have the choice on their plate here. I am not so optimistic that this will result in a uh, in an independence vote. But at any rate, I think it's the closest that we've been in in decades for this to really materialize. I think there is something in the air right now, especially right now with the, the immigration crisis and all of that adding to people's sense that there really is no great benefit and there's a lot of drawbacks to being tied at the hip with all of these other countries. Uh-huh. I've got an article here from Zero Hedge and the headline is Europe is burning. Nigel Farage <laughs> slams Merkel's migration maelstorm. All right. A little purple prose there, maybe. Um, from from ISIS marches in Germany to refugees doing normal manly things to women in Sweden, UKIP, the United Kingdom Independent Party, leader Nuke, Nigel Farage confronts Angela Merkel uh, and her peers in the European Parliament over the dreadfully misguided immigration policies. According to 
Nigel Farage, Europe is burning. And, and, uh, central, and, and just like the central bankers of the world, their solution is insanely simple-minded. Europe isn't working, so we must have more Europe. The only hope he, uh, he has uh, in the British referendum, showing is a British referendum, showing the rest of the world it's possible to take back control of its own borders. First off, what's your take on Nigel Farage? I'll take these questions one at a time rather than giving you a list of them. Well, in terms of anti-European voices in the EU Parliament, I don't think I've seen anyone who is more stringently and, and, and cogently and consistently uh, articulating the anti-globalist, anti-EU perspective. So he, uh, he's always quite entertaining when he talks on those things. And I think generally he is correct. Europe is burning, um, both in the, in the sense of uh, all of the social and, and uh, chaos and, and cultural chaos that's happening with the immigration and all of that, but also economically, of course, we've seen you know, banking destabilization in Italy coming back in the last couple of months. And of course, Greece continues to be a festering wound in the uh, European economy. So in a lot of senses, he's quite correct on that. In terms of the UKIP generally, I'm, I would say I'm not politically uh, excited and aligned with them because I think that uh, on a lot of other issues, they just tend to be hardline conservatives in the negative sense in terms of we need more, you know, more of a police state at home, which, of course, I'm not in favor of. But in terms of the EU policies, I think he anti-EU ideas, he articulates them quite well. Do you think the Muslims can be assimilated into a non-Muslim culture like, the, like Europe? Can they be assimilated or they, is this, you know, well, you get the question. You understand. What I'm yeah, yeah, of course I do. Um, yes. Uh, well, I, it really is a question that that has a history to it. It doesn't it doesn't come in a vacuum. And I, I, we've seen this articulated in the last couple of decades by people like Samuel P. Huntington, Huntington, who came out with, of course, with the uh, the uh, clash of civilizations. And that, I think, is the central organizing principle that uh, global geopolitics is working on in this era in the same way that the Cold War was the central global, uh, central principle that global geopolitics was working on, you know, pre, pre-Soviet collapse. And I think that's been consciously planned, and, and, and we've seen this steer towards that. So we have to understand this question in the context of, at the very least, the last century of manipulation and stacking of the deck and the fostering of radical Muslim ideologies by the West and the Western intelligence agencies for the purposes of of keeping nationalist movements in check in various parts of the world. That was a very big part of the, the mid-20th century strategy, trying to keep pan-Arab nationalists like uh, Nasser in Egypt down uh, by creating and fomenting the Muslim Brotherhood and other uh, organizations like that, or, of course, propping up the Saudi royal family with their radical, crazy Wahhabi uh, Islam as a way of being uh, a, a sort of controllable element within the Middle East that would be pliable to U.S. interests. So we've, we have to understand that question in the context of this all being fomented for decades and decades and decades, at the very least, again, going back at least a century when you look at the British occupation of uh, Palestine and others, so other places of that ch- chessboard. So once we understand that context, it is a good question. I mean, at this point, with those types of radical ideologies having been fostered and fomented and, and really propagated, they have gotten to a point where they do have attraction a, a, a with a lot of the public, uh, for example, in the Middle East, in the Arab nations. Um, and it does become a question, are these, are these cultures compatible and how, does, how do they 
I mean, can they merge? Can they assimilate? How does this take place? Can they even tolerate? Can they even tolerate? Yes. And and I think obviously there are certain sect, sectors and sections of Islam that which it clearly is not compatible and they, they can't, you know, tolerate, uh, you know, non-believers. But again, I think we have to understand this in the sense that this has been fostered and really inculcated. And what the question ultimately is, what do you do with that? I mean, once... Uh, once we realize there has been a concerted, coordinated effort that goes to uh, even to the micromanagement level, I think people don't understand the level to which this works. For example, people may know that there is a deep tie between U.S. and Pakistani intelligence so that the ISI has often been seen as an adjunct of the CIA. But people don't know the extent to which, for example, the Pakistani ISI and the Pakistani government, which has fostered fostered the Taliban, really, by creating all of these radical madrasas in, in Afghanistan and, and Pakistan that creates these, these fervent you know, Muslims that want to kill. They, they use teaching materials that, for example, teach children how to read or how to count by counting bombs, counting guns, counting things like this, like things that obviously are inculcating a, a sort of militaristic attitude. And those textbooks are actually being paid for by funds from USAID. Uh, when you start looking at the, the way that s entire societies have been inculcated with this, it, it, it really does change the emphasis of where is the root of this problem. And we do see time and time again in a lot of these countries where these types of terrorist attacks that are going on actually generally are turned towards against the, 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 the Arab countries themselves. I mean, we've seen, for example, Iraq torn apart with, with violence, obviously, Afghanistan torn apart with violence, Syria torn apart with violence. Generally, this is aimed internally more so than it is externally. And so we see local populations often very much against these types of radical Islamic groups. But then they gain popularity when the Americans and uh, whoever else, NATO, comes in and starts bombing their population to shreds because, hey, these guys are against them. So I think there's a much com more complicated geopolitical strategy going on here that we have to take into account the full context to understand the question. The short answer is... There are certainly are Muslim fundamentalist crazy radicals who will not tolerate other cultures. But I think the deeper question is, well, how, how is that being inculcated and what can we do to stop that? Well, either, yeah, I, what can we do to stop it? Can we stop it? I mean, some of these people, even if this culture has been artificially created, the radicals, it's been around long enough now where it has a life of its own. It has a history of its own. It's not something new where somebody walks in the door and says, Hi, I'll give you some money if you act like a radical. Now we've got your dad was a radical and your grandfather was a radical and maybe your great grandfather was a radical and where are you? You're going to be radical too. Um, this is not, this culture has enough history now where it won't be easily given up. When I think, when I look at this, I'm reminded definition, classic definition of a race, excuse me, of a nation is one race of people speaking one language within fixed borders. Uh, there might be a little bit more to it, but the idea is a nation historically was fairly homogenous. When we invite immigrants from a culture that we have reason to believe is not going to assimilate, is this an attempt to create so much internal abuse uh, uh, dis uh, destabilization within the country that the country is no longer a viable threat to, say, the New World Order. 
I mean, if the United States right. gets enough yeah. immigration, right. if they have enough immigration and the culture is radically changed, we can fight with the guy across the street. We don't have time to fight with somebody in Brussels. Right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I see what you're saying, and I agree with that, because I think that this is about balkanization. And that's yeah. kind of a strange thing when we're looking at the idea of globalization. Clearly, they just want people getting more and more used to regional and then sort of global culture or whatever. I think it works in an opposite way. They want to atomize people as much as possible so that they're fighting each other as much as possible, uh -huh. exactly as you say, so that they can't effectively fight these kind of overarching institutions, which really are, you know, puppeteering this and, 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 and controlling, and, you know, entire entire continents, economic and military policies at this point, like in Europe. So I think you're right. I mean, there's there's kind of a way in which the balkanization creates the, the, the possibility for further globalization. And it's although they seem like opposite forces, I think they work hand in hand. Yeah. And you have to wonder what are people's motives? For example, what motivated Germany's uh, Angela Merkel to encourage immigration to Middle East refugees? What did she really believe? What really moved her? Is she doing something because she thought this is good for business? We're going to get cheap labor. Hooray, we're going to get cheap yeah. labor and Germany can make more money? Yeah. Or did she understand this is going to cause trouble that will essentially fracture you, uh, at least Germany and, and ultimately Europe also into – it will balkanize them just as you're describing. What motivated Angela Merkel? Well, I, I don't I, – I can't read Merkel, Merkel's mind, so I don't know what motivated her, but I do know that at this point – Certainly by now, I don't think any politician in Europe can claim that they don't understand the effects that these policies are having or the types of cultural tensions that are coming to the fore now. So at this point, I mean, further pushing towards this, this, uh, this agenda is clearly uh, being done with the full in knowledge and intention that it will cause further strife and further, further uh, balkanization. As I say, more people getting atomized, getting into their little groups and, and fighting with each other rather than fighting against the, uh, the, the bigger forces out there. Exactly. Let's take a break for some commercials. We'll be back with James Corbett from the Corbett Report, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, report.com. Please stay tuned. or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out? When life is too much to handle, use Apothecary Herbs Emotional Stress Formula. Feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope. Complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee. You've waited long enough. Call Apothecary Herbs now. Toll free 866-229-3663 that's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3Ws.thepowerherbs.com. Oops. 
prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. I'm Alfred Addis, <clears throat> excuse me, here with James Corbett from the Corbett Report, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, report.com, uh, talking about various geopolitical issues or anecdotes, or here's one that is not even perhaps an anecdote or an issue, it's maybe just a conspiracy theory of my own creation. Here's a headline from Bloomberg, Saudi Arabia plans $2 trillion mega fund for post, for post-oil era. Saudi Arabia is getting ready for the twilight of the oil age by creating the world's largest sovereign wealth fund for the kingdom's most prized assets. Um, what they're going to do, $2 trillion public investment fund to help wane Saudi Arabia off oil. Saudis will sell shares in Aramco's parent company and transform the oil giant into an industrial conglomerate. All right. However, the International Monetary Fund, a study in 2014, noted that there were many examples of failure by countries trying to reduce reliance on energy production and few successes. The reason that strikes me as interesting is it indicates that Saudi Arabia is trying to implement a strategy that's been tried in the past and usually failed. So I'm wondering why are the Saudis trying a strategy known to usually fail. Do they think this time it's different and they can pull it off? Well, I mean, I don't know if, if it's that so much as I don't think they have a choice. And uh -huh. it's not just to do with the, the commodity route, the oil route that we've seen over the last year and a half, two years of the fall, falling oil prices. I think that's kind of the kick in the butt that got them towards this and thinking about this. But I think that they see that the, the writing is on the wall, especially after the Paris uh, climate conference last December. And now, of course, everyone's, everyone is trying to reorient. Now that we're moving towards the post-carbon future, like it or not, uh, hooker, hooker by crook, the $90 trillion of energy investments that are going to be made over the next couple of decades to try to get people off of oil in various harebrained schemes that probably won't work when we're talking about wind energy or things of that, that nature. But anyway, that's where the money is moving. That's where the markets are moving. And I think the Saudi Arabia re recognizes that whether it's, you know, a decade from now or two decades from now or three decades from now, at a certain point, uh, oil is not going to be the steady uh, source of revenue that it is for them right now. And uh, that's a big concern for the Saudi royal family, which 
essentially exists by bribing its population. Saudi Arabia, of course, doesn't have income tax. It uh, has very generous social programs, which are the basis for its ability to maintain control over the country. And when that gravy train comes to an end, I don't think the royal family is under any any delusions about uh, what, you know how much the public would love and, and respect them, even if they weren't putting that bread and butter on the table. So I think this is more of a CYA kind of maneuver. They have to do this. And uh, this is the only strategy that that uh, that they have up on, on available to them. And it's not it's not a theoretically. I mean, it's not a terrible strategy. It's it's something that they can do. Start transferring the the ownership away and start investing the the money uh, into other things and try to diversify. It's it's really the the best option they have on the table. I think. Do you think that this option? is really being advanced with the idea of providing some benefit to the nation of Saudi Arabia? Or could it be another one of the kick in the pants or kicks in the pants as they're considering the possibility of being overthrown in a political revolution and wondering how do they get their money and their wealth out of Saudi Arabia? Yeah. Uh, And what I'm wondering about, are they saying, oh, we're going to set up a $2 trillion fund here to take care of all you little people? And are they really just figuring out a way how to move their money offshore and get rid of Aramco and perhaps protect their fortune by putting it into European banks or wherever? Does that seem plausible yeah. or is that oh, too much of a conspiracy? I'm sure that is part of this. Absolutely. Um, they are, they're looking, how, how do you liquefy and, and, uh, and get that money out of there? So, yeah, I'm sure that there's a lot of that that goes on and it has been going on. It is going on. We know actually a little bit about that because we know from the Panama Papers, for example, um, there was uh, one of the documents in there was about the the king of Saudi Arabia, who apparently used a shell company purchased through this Mossack Fonseca uh, law firm to purchase some uh, real estate in London, for example. Again, on the big scheme of things, not exactly the most, you know, world-shaking corruption, but I think at least a, a window, a peek into what the Saudi, Saudi royal family is doing with their money and how they're moving it out of the country. Uh, again, I'm sure this process has been going on for a while and will accelerate with the, uh, the liquefaction of uh, Aramco and the, the creation of this $2 trillion slush fund. I've got an article from the AFP. Uh, from about 10 days ago, Greece, Greece wants International Monetary Fund explanations over WikiLeaks <laughs> report. I mean, WikiLeaks, is there any such thing as secrecy in the Internet age? Uh, yes, uh, I think so, but only for the people who, you know, are the connected cronies who can afford it. <laughs> I mean, I, I, even if nothing else, can you imagine WikiLeaks as a as a grand extortion operation? I mean, even if it is what it claims to be, I mean, it, it certainly has the goods on a lot of people, and it would be the perfect way to extort money out of out of governments or out of people that uh, that have that money to slush around and don't want certain secrets to come to light. So or, even if WikiLeaks is what it says it is, you know that there are other groups out there that are doing this type of thing for the for the monetary incentive. So uh, so again, if you can afford it, if you have the right connections, I'm sure there are ways to keep your secrets. But uh, for the uh, the average guy, uh, probably not. Uh, the article continues again. Greece wants IMF explanations over WikiLeaks report. Greece on Saturday demanded explanations from the International Monetary Fund after WikiLeaks said the lender uh, sought a crisis event to push the indebted nation, that's Greece, into concluding talks over its reforms. Prime Minister Alexis Zipras said he would call, uh, would write 
to International Monetary Fund Chief Christine, uh, Christine Lagarde and reach out to European leaders after WikiLeaks published what it said was a transcript of a teleconference in which IMF officials complained that Athens only moves decisively when faced with the peril of default. An event was therefore needed to drive the threat of default and get the Greeks to act. The nature of such event was not specified. The Greek government reacted strongly to the report, saying it wanted the IMF to clarify its position. The IMF <laughs> did not comment on leaks. It said it didn't comment on leaks or supposed reports of internal discussions. My question in all of this is what sort of event do you suppose uh, members of the IMF might be talking about? They said, we need an event to get <laughs> to make the Greeks toe the line. Were they talking about something like Pearl Harbor or the Gulf of Tonkin or maybe 9-11? Is that the kind of event they're talking about, or what do you think? It certainly could be something along those lines, for, mm-hmm. but it certainly could be an economic event. I mean, maybe yeah, they were looking for some sort of economic 9-11. But yes, I mean, yeah, I, again, this shouldn't be surprising to, to our regular listeners. We've talked about it a lot of times. I mean, who benefits in the wake of any type of scare, security, or economic? It is the, the people who come along that want to centralize more power for themselves. So it shouldn't be surprising at all to find that the IMF's internal deliberations are all about how we can basically force that sense of crisis in Greece in order to get them to come to the table. What do you think motivates people to want the kind of power to be able to run a global economy? one-world government. I mean, isn't this, don't you have to be really a little bit crazy? If you're in a position where you've got enough wealth, where you have enough wealth to be part of a conspiracy to establish one-world government, isn't that enough to go buy an island someplace and uh, jet around the world or do whatever you want to do? Why take the aggravation of trying to manage the affairs of several billion people? you get my point here? I certainly do. Yeah. No, I, I, I very much take your point because you and I, and I think I imagine most of the people listening to this conversation, don't have a desire to rule or control right. other people or manipulate them or use them yeah. as pawns or see uh-huh. the world in that way. The average person just wants to, you know, okay, I'll do my nine to five. And then at the weekend, you know, have, have a bowling and beer party or something, you know, that's, that's what the average person wants because that's the average, the way the average person interprets the world for high functioning psychopaths. It really is about trying to control everything. It is about that con- sense of control. And if you can control the entire society, Hey, right down to the individual level, Hey, all the better. And at the most charitable you could imagine that there are people who are involved in these types of activities who have the mindset uh, that they truly believe that they can engineer a society that will be better for more people. And they believe as long as they're in charge and they get to control it, they can create the perfect society. There are people like that in that system. Um, I think the ones at the very top probably just desire the control itself. But I see why the, the sort of meddling technocrats and people who have the technical know-how to bring this about probably do believe they are working in the best interest of society, like, a, say, a B.F. Skinner or someone like that, who did a lot of research into how individual humans can be controlled and shaped and their beliefs and opinions formed and, and how you can get people's behaviors regulated in, in certain ways. I'm sure he did believe that the ultimate goal of this was to create a perfect society where everyone's happy. But uh, it's a nightmare society to you and me and most people who just want to be left alone. Yeah. 
That's exactly right. Um, let's move to Brazil. Is the entire continent of South America deeply immersed in economic and political trouble, or is the problem mostly only with Brazil and maybe Venezuela? All of South American trouble or just Brazil and Venezuela? Well, I mean, certainly at the moment it's centered on Brazil, and Venezuela is, of course, also there. Argentina, not looking so good either. Um, and their new pr- president has just been implicated in this Panama Papers leak as well, so maybe some further political destabilization there. Um, Bolivia, uh, still not, not, not performing particularly well. Um, yeah, I think that there is a sort of malaise in South America generally, but it is certainly concentrated on Brazil right now. That's where the fireworks are happening. Um, and there aren't a lot of bright spots on that. Uh, a, a decade ago, Brazil was, was soaring and there was a lot of positivity and happiness and, uh, let the good times flow largely on the back of an increasing trade relationship with China. There was definitely that, uh, that part of the calculus, but uh, that's definitely disappeared, obviously, with the slowdown of China. And there doesn't seem to be anything on the horizon that's likely to take its place anytime soon. The only kind of good news that uh, Brazil, uh, economies like Brazil is getting is that, well, they might actually, there might actually be an impeachment and, and, uh, and removal from office of Rousseff, which means the change in government could potentially bring a bit more business-friendly uh, policies to, to, to the table. And on the back of that kind of, well, this could create a better thing in the long run, we've seen the, re- the real actually rallying in recent days. But, I mean, that's the type of, you know, smoke mirrors, hope and change nonsense that, uh, that Brazil's economy is resting on right now. If there's a political meltdown in Brazil, will other South American countries be dragged down, or will most of them get by without more trouble than they already have? Well, Brazil is obviously a central part of the South American economy. It's, uh, it's an extremely integral part of that. So, I mean, they can't, there can't be a huge destabilization shakeup in Brazil without it affecting its major trading partners there in Latin America. It is going to have an effect, and it's not a good effect. Obviously, it's, a, it's an anchor. It's a drag down on the rest of the, the economy at a time when, as I say, I mean, Argentina, Venezuela, there, there isn't exactly a happy happy spot right now in South America that would that would be able to pick up the slack. So it's uh, it's a downward a downward uh, pull for sure. Is there a happy spot anywhere on the globe where we can sit back and say, well, you know, if I could move here, then I'd be uh, everything will be all right. The rest of the world can go to heck. But uh, if I could get to this one place, I'd be happy. I wish that I could say that. Uh <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, there is nothing that comes to mind at this point. Uh, there are all, uh, I don't want to say it's all doom and gloom, but there are certainly potential uh, weak points in every, every region of the globe right now. And all the weak points add up. Uh, they're, they're cumulative, and they affect each other, and they influence and add to each other. So it does not create a very good system. I mean, I, I, I'm not trying to be scaremongering here, but... Obviously, this is a house of cards, right? Yeah. And the, once the winds start to blow, it doesn't matter if you're the strongest card in that house or if you're in the best position in the house. When the house collapses, you know, there's not, there's not a lot you can do about it. And again, I'm not saying it's going to be an overnight Mad Max collapse kind of thing, but I'm just saying that we're not built on a, a solid foundation of a, a, a stable, solid mon- monetary supply and, you know, happy, uh, productive economy. So... I don't think that there's any place in the world that that uh, that's looking 
positive at the moment. The only thing that I can think of is some of the lower rungs on the ladder in some of the nations, for example, in Central Asia or in Africa, where China has been investing its infrastructure, building money in the last few uh, last decades, certainly, those have a lot of room for growth. So relatively, they may be boosted a little, but it won't amount to much in terms of the overall uh, economy of the world. All right, James, I think we'll let it go at that point. No place to run to, which means you got to stand and fight where you are. We're out of time, folks. I want to thank all of you for listening, and I want to thank James Corbett from the Corbett Report for being on the program again. Always a pleasure, always interesting, always educational. Uh, we'll be back, Melody and I will be back tomorrow. In the meantime, with good Lord bless you, me, Melody, James Corbett, Frank the producer. Bye-bye. All day to pay the bills I have to pay. Pain is sad. Still, there never seems to be a single penny left for me. Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Most people realize their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. AVR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water. I would like to tell you about the only truly natural dog and cat food I have found anywhere. Most all companies add a synthetic vitamin mineral pack to their dry or kibble food. Nature's logic is different. With all 
natural ingredients and nothing man-made added. Their owner, Scott Freeman, worked for another pet food company, but decided he wanted to do things right. So he started Nature's Logic. You can check them out at natureslogic.com. You will find online and local stores where you can find their products. I spent a lot of time trying to find an all-natural pet food, and Nature's Logic was the only one out there. Give your pets the best and check out naturelogic.com. Your pets will be glad you did. They also have many other natural pet products to try. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific.
Good evening, all. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is still Wednesday, April 13th, 2016, and it is about seven minutes after 8 p.m. All right. If that's all true where you're at right now, given the time differential, we are live. You can participate in this show. That's right, this is a listener participation show. But I warn you, if you refuse to participate, I will just continue keeping talking. Yeah, let that let that be a lesson to you. Eight hundred nine three two nineteen eighty. Eight hundred nine three two nineteen eighty is the call in number. That is how you get on the air. But you know, you don't have to participate in that way. You can go to our chat room, which is located at our website, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. You will see the chat link. It's real easy. Click it. Simple. Very simple. A Democrat could do it. (laughs) Uh, Look, hey, you know what? I'm going to start making the joke a Republican could do it. Uh, Really. I mean, honestly, because uh, I don't think anybody's going to ever mistake me for a Democrat. But, you know, you might mistake me for a Republican if I say that like I just did. And I'm not that either. Uh, and I think I think most of you can uh, understand why. You might even be feeling the same way that, man, I don't want anything to do with any of these people. They're crooks. They're all criminals. They're all liars. Uh, you can also participate as I see a blinking light over here shows that somebody is participating that way through the Yahoo Instant Messenger. My screen name is AVRN Talk. Okay, so that's how you do that. This is how it all goes. This is how it all works. You can, you don't have to anyway. All right. Uh Let's see here. Now, I I, did, I haven't read this yet, and I want to see about this. And I'll just read this to you because it sounds interesting. I read, like, a couple lines of it. Trump on track to bust out America, question mark. A bust out is a common tactic in the organized crime world wherein a business assets and lines of credit are exploited and exhausted to the point of bankruptcy. Oh. Gee, you think the United States has done anything like that? Mark 
Galanetti, who, in my opinion, that name kind of sounds like an organized crime uh, figure, but he's not. A New York University professor. Oh, wait, maybe I was right. And one of the leading experts in transitional organized crime, I think I am right, described the familiar tactic, quote, it's one of the classic tactics of organized crime. You exploit it as far as you can, and when you have essentially squeezed every possible bit of value out of it, you burn it. In organized crime's case, I mean that literally, whereas with private equity, it's planned bankruptcy. But essentially, you dispose of it as convenient a way as possible, and then you walk away. This squeeze-and-burn tactic has been dramatized both by The Sopranos and the film Goodfellas, where mobsters take control of companies, run up the credit. In The Sopranos, the hapless victim, a man with a healthy sporting goods store and corrosive gambling addiction, asks Soprano how the process will end. The, fina- uh, the fictional mob boss is ready with a precise answer. Planned bankruptcy. Well, <laughs> So Trump, you know, is this somebody's idea of a joke? Now, I don't know what they're <clears throat> – I just clicked on it. We're going to find out because I find this very interesting. Uh, you know what I find very interesting? I, I find interesting all these articles about Trump and about what he might do, what he might say, what he could do, what might happen. And, you know, hey, they're all possibilities. I get that, man, and I speculate on things myself, so I think probably most people do, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not actually, you know, criticizing that. But what I'm wondering is, hey, where's all the articles about Hillary Clinton's crimes? And I don't just mean the emails. I mean the whole Benghazi thing. You Do you realize the emails classification thing has taken front stage over Benghazi? Now, wait a minute. Okay, listen. Putting classified or top secret information out, out in the wild when you're not supposed to, especially when you're Secretary of State, yeah, that's a crime, and she should be punished and all that, and, you know, uh, maybe a little, some jail time out of that. But, okay, what about Benghazi, man? A U.S. ambassador died there because of her, because of Obama, because of those two. How come that's not in the news anymore? How come we're not hearing about that as, well, Hillary's got real worries. Boy, if uh, it finds out that she was complicit in the ambassador's death because of gun running and drug running through Libya, well, gee golly. No, we're not hearing anything about that. You know what they've done? It's almost as though they have decided, well... Let's see. We got a murder charge here, or we have an embezzlement charge over here. Hmm. Let's see. We can't make them both go away, so what can we do? I know what we can do. We can focus on the misdemeanor here, make a big deal about it like it's the biggest thing in the world, like, oh boy, oh man, oh wow, are you ever in big trouble? Man, you let the Russians see our secret documents. Well, the Russians already have all our secret documents, so do the Chinese, so does everybody else, except you and me. We're the only ones in the dark here, folks, and that's the way it's supposed to be. Meanwhile, they figure, well, hey, now everybody's chasing their tail over here, nobody's talking about the murder, right? 
people died in Benghazi. Okay, as far as I know, nobody has claimed that anybody died because Hillary Clinton had her own email server. I mean, has anybody died because Hillary Clinton had her own email server? Hey, if you know of somebody who's died because she had her own email server, you give me a call and tell everybody. But as far as I know, nobody's died because of her little email server. But people did die in Benghazi. So why aren't they being held responsible for that? Just asking now that we're talking about this whole, oh, really? So this seems like a deceptive practice by organized crime. Well, hmm, let's look at some deceptive practices. So, anyway, planned bankruptcy is what Soprano tells him. In the organized crime world, the business practice relies on the threat of physical violence. A group of investors, in Soprano's case, an entire family, looks for companies that have a strong underlying business but are in distress thanks to heavy debt burdens. The investors then take... Is this at all sounding like the United States? Hmm, okay, good. Have a strong underlying business but are in distress thanks to heavy debt burdens and really stupid business practices. But the investors then take over the company. In the mob's case, the family presents the business with a very high-interest loan, an offer which, under the financial circumstances, is difficult to refuse, and effectively takes control of the company. Private equity investors, by contrast, buy control of the company's board by purchasing the firm's stock. But for both private equity firms and the mafia... Investors use their control of the firm to take on more debt, while at the same time cutting costs by laying off workers. Hey, you know who does this? Hey, that was Mitt Romney's job at Bain Capital. That's what he did. Yeah, that's his job. Do you see what they just explained exactly what Mitt Romney did at Bain Capital? Yes, our hero, Mitt Romney. That's right, the same loser that ran for president, that now the chieftains of the GOP are telling everybody, oh, well, well, Donald Trump's not electable. Well, maybe we could get Mitt Romney in here. Oh, yeah, because he did such a great job. Hey, why don't you make John McCain his running mate? That'll really be great, huh? Who could lose at that? Unbelievable. Anyway. How is it, exactly, that an investor can make millions even as the company he's ostensibly trying to turn around goes bust? Well, the investors all profit, it turns out. Not despite the failure of the company, but in fact because of the failure of the company. Cash from the loans and cost savings are funneled back to the investors. Uh, folks, I got bad news for you. This is the way the whole financial system has worked with America, okay? This is what the central bankers have, and the Wall Street, I don't even know what to call those creatures, but that's what they've all done to this nation, okay? It's exactly what they've done to this nation. This is the Federal Reserve System. Exactly what this guy is talking about. All right, so when it finally collapses, the company files for bankruptcy to extinguish the debt. But private equity investors, as well as mobsters, 
get to keep the gains they've already reaped. The difference between the mafia bust-out and the corporate Chapter 11 bankruptcy scam is largely one of scale. Both, however, are examples of the same organized crime tactics. Yeah. Okay. Something to think about here. Donald Trump has never personally been bankrupt. However, he has had four major businesses that did indeed fail and filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy. I figure it's only fair that I bring this stuff up because, hey, I've been slamming on Ted Cruz, which I am going to continue to do because this guy is turning out to be, uh, well, like a Manchurian candidate kind of thing. I'm serious, folks. He is surrounded by CIA handlers. His daddy worked for the CIA and George Bush, Zabata Oil. He was handing out flyers in Louisiana with uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. He left the country right after President Kennedy was assassinated. And who did he go to work for in Canada? What oil company? Sabata. And that is the Bush family oil company. It goes on and on and on with the little woman working for Goldman Sachs. And not just mopping the floors at Goldman Sachs, folks. Okay? She's on the head committee, the executive committee at Goldman Sachs. She's not just some flunky nobody at Goldman Sachs, like we're led to believe. Anyway, let's see here. Uh, Trump-related companies have filed for corporate bankruptcy four separate times. Filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy allows a corporation, which is largely distinct of its shareholders, owners, board, and CEO, to stay in business while it restructures and attempts to reduce its debt. So while he's been keep, able to keep his personal finances in order, the businesses that so proudly trumpet his billion-dollar name are something of a different story in preparation for Trump's time on the national stage. Here's a close look at those filings. Well... Okay. 1991, Trump's Taj Mahal in Atlantic City. Well, listen. And then there's another one in Atlantic City. And then there's, uh, let's see. Hmm. This thing would just go. See, I actually... uh, worked in Atlantic City when it was, you know, they had just made gambling legal like a year before. And when I first got there, there was basically one operating casino, and that was Resorts International. And the reason it was operating was because they took an existing building and remodeled it quickly and got up and running. Uh, A lot of the other casinos tore down what was there and built back up a brand new shiny casino and and trump was a couple of those and uh what happened in atlantic city was i mean you could see it coming maybe not right from the beginning because but once you realized and started watching the news and seeing that other states were saying hey it's kind of like legalizing marijuana you know when you legalize cannabis actually and and you say, okay, fine, we're going to legalize it, we're going to tax it, and then you do it, and everybody realizes, ooh, the sky didn't fall, everybody didn't turn into a junkie on the, you know, in the gutter. Uh, golly, nothing changed at all, except, oh, 
What are all these extra billions of dollars in tax revenue? Yeah. So what happens? Other states say, hey, maybe we ought to think about uh, legalizing cannabis too. Well, casinos were the same thing. Gambling was the same thing. Atlantic City said, okay, that's it. We're making it legal. Well, everybody watched and realized, hey, man, look at all that money uh, they're making. Well, then other states, especially like Pennsylvania, the Pocono Mountains, all over the place, along the Mississippi. I mean, you, you can gamble so many places in the United States, not to mention the Indian tribes, that Atlantic City tried to build itself up like Las Vegas. Like, hey, you want to gamble? This is the only place in town, and we're huge, okay? We're huge. We got lots of choices, but we're the only place you can go in the United States to gamble. Well, that's not true anymore. Now people can go closer to home. They can go to places they'd rather go than the middle of a stinking desert, right? Or to some run-down cesspool of a city like Atlantic City, okay? Really, honestly, sorry. That's kind of how it is there. I mean, hey, you know, the, it's always nice to be on the water, but... <laughs> Not not that much there. So, you know, he has the Taj Mahal and the Plaza Hotel in Atlantic City. They both went bankrupt. Not not really uh, surprising. You know, uh, as Donald Trump would tell you, that's a bad deal. He didn't see that coming. Like a lot of people say, well, you know, Trump uh, is just his campaign is stupid because they're just not paying attention to the rules. And they don't realize how, oh, Cruz is so, so much smarter and he's uh, just do, running the rules. That's how he's getting all the delegates without any elections, without anything, right? He's just stealing the elections. And, oh, how smart is that of him? Because, you know, he's just, uh, well, it's crooked, okay? It's crooked for one. And maybe they are stupid because, you know, this shows a lack of uh, forward thinking because uh, he had four casinos go down. And he invested a lot in Atlantic City. And, you see, this is why Donald Trump donates money to Democrats, Republicans, and whoever else is in office. Because a guy like Donald Trump needs a lot of favors. Okay, you need a lot of favors. Because, okay, I'm going to spend, say, a billion dollars building a casino in Atlantic City because it's legal now. And it seems as though it's a good business thing. But... I've got to have access to some politicians here that are going to give me some assurances that, okay, well, uh, for instance, New York City isn't going to all of a sudden turn around and make gambling legal. The Pocono Mountains aren't right away going to do the same. Because if you don't have those assurances, you're not going to invest that kind of money, or you really shouldn't invest that kind of money in a place like Atlantic City, because you've got to see the writing on the wall. That if everybody's going to make gambling legal, then people are not going to travel very far to come to Atlantic City to go gambling. Make sense? Anyway. So anyhow, that, that article goes on to uh, slam you know, uh, Trump a little more, but what's the point? I mean, you know, he went, you know, I, I think it, <laughs> I don't think they were good deals. I'm sorry. Uh, but hey, so what? A lot of, a lot of businesses make bad deals and it's not just bad deals. You know what, what happens 
folks. What happens if you do have all these politicians that you paid millions of dollars to, and you tell them, hey, I'm going to spend these billions of dollars, I'm going to create a lot of jobs by uh, putting a lot of construction people to work, then I'm going to put a lot of people to work giving them jobs at casinos, uh, but, you know, it's going to cost a lot of money, and it's going to take a little while to make that money back, so I'm going to need some assurances. And they give you those assurances, and they say, oh, yeah, Donald, uh, no problem. You betcha. Why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing this up because a lot of people are wondering, or at least speaking out loud, wondering that why would Donald Trump want to do this? Why would he want to run for president? Why would, you know, well, I have a theory, and this is the evidence that I'm I'm presenting to kind of, you know, show you at least why I have that theory. I think Donald Trump is doing it as a vendetta. I really do. And on the good side here, folks, I believe because it's a vendetta, and I'll tell you what, the Republican Party certainly is acting like it's a vendetta, that if Trump does get in, he's going to take a lot of these people down. A lot of these insiders. A lot of these dirty backstabbing dealers. And, and why do I think that? Because I think he did get assurances, because nobody is going to spend that kind of money, invest that kind of capital, doing something without some kind of assurances. And then, as we know, politicians have this nasty habit of, well, lying all the time about everything. So what if they give him these assurances? He starts doing business based on these insurances, and they turn around and say, well, you know, we got a bigger, better offer from uh, Philadelphia and the Pocono Mountains and New York City, and they're all going to be having gambling here. Well, hey, what are you going to do? You're stuck now. All you can do is go bankrupt. And then they blame and say, well, you know, all these uh, investors and all these poor people lost their jobs. Let's not forget, okay? Yep, when, when Trump filed bankruptcy and those, those casinos shut down, a lot of people lost their jobs. But let's not forget that those people would have never had jobs if Donald Trump had not built those casinos in the first place. Those construction workers would not have had jobs if he had not built those casinos. So yeah, okay, you can say, well, Donald Trump lost me my job. Oh yeah, maybe he did, but he also gave you the job. I guess the, the Donald giveth and the Donald taketh away, huh? So this is something to understand about business and bankruptcy and stuff. And yeah, you know, I mean, okay, I was in Atlantic City and I thought this is, you know what, they are building too much, too fast. This is not sustainable. This is gonna, this is not going to end well. I mean, and they didn't just build casinos, man. They built all kinds of high-rise apartment buildings uh, for residential because they were going to need all these workers. And, they, you know, what's going on now with that? Atlantic City is in, 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 man, they got bad times there. So you contrast that, and you say, yeah, well, okay, that's 
That's not great. And it's not. Hey, what do I tell you? He's a used car salesman. He he makes sleazy deals sometimes. And yeah, he's always going to profit. Because whether you roll out of the car lot and die in a wreck down the street because the brakes didn't work, that salesman still gets his commission. Okay? Anyway, you contrast that, though. Okay, so we've got a let's call him a slimy car dealer, car salesman, versus a slimy CIA operative. Well, I don't know. I'm going with the car salesman, folks. You know, given those choices, I'm sorry. Because the car salesman might lie to me. He might put me in a junker. He might rip off my money. But chances are he's not going to strap me down and waterboard me. As opposed to, say, a CIA operative. So I'm going to have to pick the slimy car salesman in this in this thing. Well, I'm going to take a break. And when we come back, I've got, uh, I've got a bunch of other things. We'll have to roll quick to get through them. But anyhow, we'll be back in just a few. Let me show you how to be 
have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Most people realize their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. ABR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. 
Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific.
All right, we're back. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Steffen. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It's still Wednesday, April 13th, 2016. It's about 845 out here on the Pacific Time Coast, if that's when it is where you're at. We're live, 800-932-1980 is the call in. TheAmericanVoice.com or AmericanVoiceRadio.com. Look for the chat link and... uh, Click it. It's that easy. It's really easy. You can get in the chat real easy. Even if you've never been in there before, pick a name, pick a password, that's it. And the password's only so nobody uses your name but you. Anyhow, Yahoo Instant Messenger, AVRN Talk is my screen name. You can can, uh, contact me directly that way. All right, let's get back to things. Oh, yeah, uh, first band, guy named Eric Gales. You Ain't the Boss of Me. I like that song. And uh, the second one there, I don't like it as much, but it's different. band called Iron Claw. Okay. Oh, where to go, where to go. So much news, so little time. Anyhow, uh, what's this? Mm, ah. Nah, I'm not going to do that tonight. I've got a, a, an article here, the Empire Files, uh, about how the Congo is being robbed and about Africa, AFRICOM. Okay, that's the United States. And they they run two missions a day in Africa. Oh, they don't mention, well, what those, me- what those missions might be, but uh, what exactly is the United States Army Command doing in Africa running two missions a day on average? That's an average. Got to wonder, well, this kind of details some of it. It ain't good, folks. I doubt you're going to be happy about it, all right? Although, are there really a lot of things that you're happy about in America, the way things are going? Okay, let's do this one. I like lists, too. Other hosts do also. Maybe you do, too. How about 19 facts that prove things in America are worse than they were six months ago? Well, <laughs> you know, I could just cut to the chase and say, look around 19 times, right? But that would be a little boring, so I'm not going to do that. I'm going to actually go through what they, I mean, somebody actually, you know, went through the uh, trouble of writing down 19 of these. So I'll I'll read them to you. But, you know, do you really need 19 reasons to know that things are worse than it was? Has the U.S. economy gotten better over the last six months, or has it gotten worse? In this article, you'll find solid proof that the U.S. economy has continued to get worse over the last six months. Unfortunately, most people seem to think that since the stock market has rebounded significantly in recent weeks, that everything must be okay. But, of course, that's not true at all. If you look at a chart of the Dow, a very ominous head and shoulders pattern is forming, and all of the economic fundamentals are screaming that big trouble is ahead. When Donald Trump told the Washington Post that we are heading for a very massive recession, he wasn't just making stuff up. We are already seeing lots of things happen that never take place outside of a recession. And the U.S. economy has already been sliding downhill fairly rapidly over the past several months. Past several months, these people are dreaming. Our economy has been sliding downhill since, like, oh, I don't know, let's say 1979. 
sure, we bounced some. We hit the ground and bounced up a little bit. But you know what? You ever do that with a rubber ball? You know, just drop it and watch. You know, so you drop it at about five feet. Boom. It bounces up about what? Three, four feet? And then it goes back down and hits the ground and then bounces up, what, another foot or two? Then it hits the ground and bounces up like six, eight inches or something. Then it hits the ground and uh, not too long, it just stays on the ground and rolls on off into traffic. And that is about what's been happening to the United States since about the 70s. Okay, number one. U.S. factory orders have now declined on a year-over-year basis for 16 months in a row, Zero Hedge noted. In the post-World War II era, this has never happened outside of a recession. In 60 years, the U.S. economy has not suffered a 16-month continuous yo-yo drop in factory orders without being in a recession. And... Moments ago, the U.S. Department of Commerce confirmed this is precisely what the U.S. economy did when factory orders not only dropped for the 16th consecutive month after declining 1.7 in the last month. Okay. Number two, factory orders have now reached the lowest level that we have seen since the summer of 2011. Three, it has been projected that corporate earnings will be down 8.5%. Wait a minute, i got to wipe this tear from my eyes because, boy, corporate earnings are down. Oh, I, I, uh, I don't know if I can go on. I'm so, I'm so sad for them. Number four is total business sales have fallen 5% since the peak in mid-2014. S&P number five, S&P 500. I'm not going to read the numbers. I'm just going to go through this list. I'm running out of time. S&P 500 earnings have now fallen a total of 18.5% from their peak in 2014. Corporate debt defaults have soared in the highest level that we have seen since 2009. I'll have to dry my tears later. The average rating on U.S. corporate debt has fallen to BB, which is lower than it has been at any point since the last financial crisis. The U.S. oil rig count just hit a 41-year low. Gee, that's longer than six months, isn't it? But anyway, 51 oil and gas drillers in North America have filed for bankruptcy since the beginning of last year. And according to CNN, we could be on the verge of seeing the biggest one yet. Shale oil driller Sandridge Energy warned there was substantial doubt it would survive the oil downturn. The Oklahoma City company said this week it is exploring a potential Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing. <gasps> what? Well, we should put his family on TV and call him bad names. Bankruptcy, why isn't that what we do to people who go bankrupt? Well, their businesses? Hmm. Based on its $3.6 billion in debt, Sandridge would be the biggest North American oil-focused company to go bust during the current downturn, according to CNN Money Analysis of stats compiled by law firm Haynes & Boom. According to Challenger, Gray & Christmas, Job cut announcements by major firms in the United States were up 32% during the first quarter of 2016 compared to the first quarter of 2015. So since last year, job cut announcements by major firms in the United States were up 32%. But don't fear, folks. Probably half of that is just, you know 
firms firing Americans so they can hire H-1B immigrants. Yeah. Does that, does that make you feel any better? Consumers in the United States accumulated more new credit card debt during the fourth quarter of 2015 than they did during the entire years of 2009, 10, and 11 combined. Wow. So in four months, the last four months of 2015, Americans accumulated more new credit card debt than 2009, 10, and 11 combined. Existing home sales in the U.S. were down 7.1% during the month of February. And this was the biggest decline that we have witnessed in six years. Subprime auto loan delinquencies have hit their highest level since the last recession. <laughs> the restaurant performance index in the United States recently dropped to the lowest level that we've seen since 2008. Major retailers all over the country are shutting down hundreds of stores as the retail apocalypse accelerates. If you take the number of working-age Americans that are officially unemployed, 8.1 million, and add that to the number of working-age Americans that are considered to be not in the labor force, which is 93.9 million, that gives us a grand total of 102 million working-age Americans that do not have jobs right now. Folks, we've only got 330 million people in this country. And 102 million working-age people ain't working. Since peaking during the third quarter of 2014, U.S. exports of goods and services have been steadily declining. The cost of everything related to medical care just continues to skyrocket, even though our wages are stagnating. According to the Social Security Administration, 51% of all American workers make less than $30,000 a year. And yet, the cost of medical care just hit a brand new all-time high. Our government debt continues to spiral out of control at this point. It is sitting at a staggering total of nineteen trillion two hundred. Yeah, whatever. Uh, you know, it's the nineteen trillion number. But when Barack Obama first entered the White House, it was only ten point six trillion dollars. Now it's nineteen point two. Wow, he's almost doubled it. Well, I bet he. I bet he'll be able to, cause you know he's still got. He's still got a few months left, man. He's still got a few months left, man. He can do it. He can double it. Wow, he doubled the national debt. And that's the phony national debt that's a fraction of what it really is. That means that our government has been stealing an average of more than $100 million an hour from future generations of Americans every single hour of every single day since Barack Obama was inaugurated. Boy, is that cool or what, huh? Man, you know, you wonder why these kids go out and, you know, say, hey, we support Bernie Sanders. You know, oh, you mean the clown that's telling you everything's for free. I'm going to give you everything, everything you ever wanted. Free school, free medical, uh, free job if you want it. And if you don't, we'll get you a robot to take care of you and bring you food and stuff. And well, everything's free, man. Don't worry about anything. Yeah, oh, you wonder why. Why would those kids vote for somebody like that? Well, because... uh. 
Right? Why not? That's what their parents have done to them. Oh, sure. Hey, get me another round of drinks. Put it on Junior's tab. That's what mom and dad have been doing. You think these kids are, well, they are stupid, but, well, you know what? They're not stupid. They can't critically think anymore. Okay? They're not stupid, per se, but they just have no critical thinking abilities. But they know when everybody knows when you're getting screwed. Even the dog knows who kicks it when it gets home, okay, when they get home. You don't have to be a genius to figure out who's screwing you over. And, uh, well, they're not geniuses, but they do know who's screwing them over. So they're just doing the same, saying, fine, hey, let's vote for the guy who's going to give us everything for free. Who cares who pays for it? Mom and dad didn't care. Their mom and dad didn't care. Nobody in Washington cares. Why should I care? Give me the guy who wants to give everything to me for free. I mean, you can understand why they are the way they are, why they support who they support. That whole reality thing really sucks when you find out, oh, what? What do you mean nothing's for free? What do you mean somebody has to produce something? What do you mean if I'm getting for something for free, somebody else is having to pay for it? What? 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 I don't understand. Well, of course not. You've been in mommy and daddy's basement for the last 30 years playing video games. How could you understand? So, when you watch television and they tell you, oh boy, hey man, guess what? You know, hey, the stock market's really doing good and that means yay for all of us. Oh, we're on the rebound. Don't believe it, folks. I mean it. Do not believe it. I'm going to play, after this, before we get to the documentaries, I'm going to play an ad for Discount Gold and Silver. And I'm telling you, you had better consider. I mean, if you have any wealth and you're already prepared, what I mean by that is you've got food, you've got water, you've got medical supplies, you've got guns, you've got ammo, you've got all that stuff down as as well as you think you need to right now, but you got this big pile of money over there. Well, what am I going to do with that? Keep it in the bank? You better not, unless you want to lose it. And you know what? If you want to lose it, you can just send it to me. All right? Don't let the bank have it. Give it to me. Send it all here to me. Go on the website and see my address, and you can send it all right here to me. Because I will turn it into gold and silver and guns and ammo and all that. But, folks, I'm encouraging you, please. Don't sit there and believe this claptrap about everything's okay and it's all getting better and we're out of the recession, we're in some kind of rebound and all that. We're not. We're not. We might be in a rebound, but we're about to roll down the street into traffic, okay? Anyway, I'm about to roll right out of here, hopefully not into traffic, but I will be back again tomorrow, and as always, thanks for listening.
American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, and Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Votes. 
for showing a minus sign in front of the votes that it had subtracted from four. I mean, it wasn't like it was trying to hide it. It says there's minus 16,022 votes. How could a computer that is supposed to protect the votes of you and me count backwards to give a candidate negative votes? Either it was an error or someone had tried to rig the election. There was an investigation into the negative votes, and it was established that the problem couldn't have been due to machine failure, because only the totals for the presidential race were affected. It looked like a second memory card may have been loaded onto the computer. Memory cards contain the votes, but this second card had disappeared, so they couldn't check it. The origin of the negative votes was never proved, but some engineers thought that it might have been an attempt to tamper with the election. But no one will ever know for sure. The software that counted those votes was owned by Global Election Systems. In 2002, they were bought by the Diebold Corporation. The software is a trade secret. It's against federal and state law to look inside Diebold's voting machines. Uh, I was the chief technical advisor to the Secretary of State of the largest state in the United States, and I was not allowed to look at the software running in Diebold or any other vendor's voting systems. To this day, I have not been allowed to look at that software. Software like this is installed in more than 30 states. If someone tampers with it, or it just malfunctions, then the wrong people can win elections. If that happens, hundreds of representatives, judges, and other officials may hold offices they are not elected to. Democrat or Republican, it affects us all. lives in Seattle with her family. A writer, publicist, and grandmother, she knew nothing about computer programming or election systems. But when her county bought a new touchscreen system, she started to ask questions. The answers she got reveal a system in crisis. You know, I had a life before I did this, and I never really envisioned uh, becoming any kind of an activist or advocate. But... Sometimes something comes into your life and you know, well, if I don't do it, then maybe no one else will, and then maybe I don't want to bequeath that to my children. I put three words into a news search engine, voting machines, and glitch, and found dozens and dozens of elections that were miscounted by the machines. And about that time, I thought, we really have a problem. What Bev had found was that you couldn't necessarily rely on the election results produced by voting machines. In Louisiana, Susan Berniker, a Republican candidate, filmed the proof when she went to check her results on a touchscreen computerized voting system. This is where I came the day that the uh, warehouses are open to the candidates to inspect. So I came here with an old college buddy. He grabbed his camera. And I asked them to show me how the machine works. So I just started fooling around with the machine. And it's when I pressed the button next to my name, and then I look down and I see Mr. Gambaluka's name in the display when I press Susan Burnacker. Shall we do it again? Do it again. Yeah. Okay, here we go again. I'm pressing Burnacker. Gambaluka shows up. So we went down the row. We probably tested 15 machines, and I said, you know what, we don't have to test anymore. Mm -hmm. 
that is when I said, oh my goodness, what, this is terrible. We can't count our votes. So how do we know this is right? Because the casting of the vote is secret, it's rare to get documentary evidence of machines miscounting. But Susan's experience isn't an isolated problem. Computers count around 80% of America's votes. It's the counties that run elections and buy voting machines. So the make and model varies from place to place, but there are two major types. On a touchscreen machine, the software counts the selections you make on the screen. Optical scan machines read a paper ballot that you have voted on. The votes themselves are stored on the computer's memory cards. This is the voter cartridge. Cartridge is very important, and it goes right into our bag. There it is. These memory cards are taken to a master computer, sometimes called the central tabulator, which reads the votes, adds them up, and then declares the winner. The problem is that you can't see a computer adding up the votes. So, how do you know if it's counted correctly? Suppose that we didn't have any computers at all. And when you went to vote, the voting booth was separated by a curtain, and there was a guy behind the curtain who would write down your votes. So you just dictate them, he writes them down, and when you're done, you leave without being able to look at the ballot. Most people in their right mind would not trust this process. The guy behind the curtain could be incompetent, he could hear your votes wrong and record them improperly, or it could be that he doesn't like your political affiliation and would prefer to see your votes cast for someone else. In an electronic voting machine, you don't have a little guy inside the machine taking dictation, but you have lots of people who are involved in writing the software and lots of people who could have touched the software before it went into that machine. If one of those people puts something malicious in the software and it's distributed to all the machines, then that one person could be responsible for the change of possibly tens of thousands of votes, maybe even hundreds of thousands across the country. That's a very dangerous situation. You know, I began looking into these voting machines, and one reason I was so curious is because it's a secret how they work. The companies that make them keep it a secret, none of the computer scientists felt they could even look at the code because the code was supposed to be a secret. The certification labs that examine it keep their process a secret of what they do, and even the election officials who buy the equipment are prohibited by their contract from ever looking and seeing how it works. What happened next really changed my life. I was looking for technicians who could perhaps answer some questions of mine, and while I was looking for technicians, I stumbled upon an obscure web page. The web page was an old uh, predecessor of the Devil election systems page, and I clicked the link, and that link took me to a site that was not a web page, but it was more like a library or an online filing system, and it contained a, a bunch of different files, just like you see on your computer, and within those were more files, and within those were more files, and the files were amazing. They were things like the software specifications, the software itself, the drawings for the hardware, the user manuals, passwords in some cases. It was the crown jewel for Diebold election systems. 
she'd just found was a computer program called GEMS. GEMS, made by the Diebold Corporation, counts around 40% of America's votes. So I began downloading these files. And throughout the night, I continued to download them. Throughout the weekend, I continued to download them. There were so many files. It took about 40 hours to download all the files there were. And then I knew I would be working on this project for a long, long time. Up to this point, only the voting machine companies knew how America's elections were actually counted. When Bev downloaded the Diebold software, the wall of secrecy began to crumble. The Diebold Corporation claimed that Bev had stolen the software from their FTP internet site. The FTP site was an unfortunate situation, I admit to that. It was a situation where that information was out there, it was captured, which was our fault. We made a mistake, and we readily admit that. Will it happen again? No, it will not. I had never looked at software code in my life, but as a writer, one thing you learn to do is ask a whole lot of questions and learn as much as you can about things. I will say that I didn't want to go through it. I thought, you know, maybe I can cover this story without really learning how it works, but it wasn't to be. I had to actually learn how it works. After finding the files, you know, I sort of collected together some various computer scientists or computer programmers who could help me understand them. And Avi Rubin did an amazing study with three colleagues of his. I got a call that the Diebold code was on the web. Uh, Bev Harris had found it on Diebold's own site and so, you know, did I want to analyze it? And I said, sure. You know, I was very excited about the opportunity to analyze Diebold's code, and I think it's the first chance anyone had ever had on the outside to see what's going on inside of these electronic voting machines. Dr. Rubin found that you could hack into an election without even knowing how the system worked. The problem that Bev has discovered is, is a pretty significant security hole, and it does open the way for people uh, to really seriously manipulate the election in a way that's very difficult to detect. But it wasn't just the Diebold machines that were a concern. Sequoia, ESNS, and Diebold uh, have the lion's share of the market. In fact, ESNS and Diebold alone have about 80% of the electronic voting market. The state of Maryland had spent $55 million on a Diebold election system. They asked computer consultants Raba Technologies to test it. Raba were able to break into the machines in around 10 seconds. I mean, what do they spend the $55 million on? Accuracy and security and reliability of the equipment. Again, there's a perception there. And well, it's I more than a perception. I mean, these scientists broke into the machine. I will tell you from what I read in the robber report, and I've read it very carefully, is that the steps that they took and how they, they stated that they had affected the machine in an environment of an actual election would be virtually impossible. Most states require that the voting systems be tested by independent testing authorities, or ITAs. But if the machines had been tested, then why were there so many security flaws? And why could they count votes backwards? 
it seems I have friends both in private industry working for these companies and working in government that I don't know about and don't know who they are who know there's something wrong. They're disturbed by what they see and they want people to know what's going on. What I have obtained here, and these are hard to get your hands on, are two reports. One is for both here, one is for Diebold Gem System. They're both from Cyber, which is an independent testing authority. They have these extensive charts where they go over all of the different regulations in the FEC guidelines and they have check mark after check mark saying that yes, they, they pass, they pass, they pass, they pass. Both of them are the same. You get to the last page and there's a check mark in the other column. Something wasn't tested. And what was not tested is the security of the system. This is the test that tells us whether these things can be tampered with. And here I have Penetration analysis not reviewed by Software ITA. Bev founded blackboxvoting.org, a not-for-profit organization dedicated to consumer protection for elections. She published the results of her investigations on her website. Andy Stevenson, a candidate for Secretary of State in Washington, read her findings and decided to contact her. I was still actually running for office. And my reaction was, is, <laughs> bleep, <laughs> I'm screwed. <laughs> Bev and I couldn't get any answers from our public officials, no matter how much we hounded them. It was just impossible. So we decided on our own to, to go get the answers. Bev and Andy joined forces. They wanted to know why voting equipment wasn't being tested for security and why it could count backwards. We set out to meet Sean Southworth in Huntsville, Alabama. He is the uh, tester of equipment and software for all the major manufacturers of voting equipment. wired with a small camera. He and Bev wanted to be sure that their conversation with Sean Southworth was properly recorded, word for word. Uh, I'm looking for Sean Southworth. Hey, how are you? Yeah. Hi, I'm just here. I just had a couple of questions. Um, to Right. And, and my question is, 
Did oh, we, minus hope. Because we, put, we now know that that happened. Do we put things in there that have that kind of burden? No. I don't know of any time that I've ever put a report out that would say because any time we write a report, the system's going through the test. And first of all, vendors not going to want a report that has something negative in it. So they will retest and retest and retest and retest and retest until they make it right. Until we get everything in there that is done to the standard. And then we write a report. So if cyber claims the machines passed the tests for accuracy and security, then why are they capable of counting backwards? And why can someone break into them in 10 seconds? What people are saying is, why should they trust these machines? I think the main reason is because everything is tested before it's ever deployed for an election. And I, it sounds like I'm a broken record, keep going back to that, but that's a very important step. Bev continued her trip across the states. It was clear that the official records weren't going to reveal anything. So Bev started to raid the trash of the voting machine companies and their customers, the counties. She was joined in her dumpster diving campaign by Kathleen Wynn, an activist from Cleveland, Ohio. I mean, it's a hit or miss. It's like shopping. You never know what you're going to get until you go. And you open it up and go, okay, nothing. But you never, this looks like a possibility. I think what we'll want to do is get to some place where it looks like we can be fairly undisturbed, you know, behind a supermarket or something. Bev and Kathleen made dozens of raids. Uh, it's legal. When they put documents out in a dumpster in public areas, it's uh, perfectly legal to go get them because they're no longer protecting them. We wouldn't have to do this if our system wasn't secret and hadn't been turned over to private corporations. Digital cameras. And unfortunately, what their inner workings are is the vote of you and I, citizens of America. On July 11, 2004, during a raid on Diebold's own trash in McKinney, Texas, Kathleen found some of Diebold's internal accounts. Um, this is some of the stuff that we found actually in McKinney, Texas, in the Diebold trash. Uh, I found an accounts receivable ledger. And in the accounts receivable ledger, I was interested to see the top item was actually money due to Diebold from the 8th District Republican Committee. Now that's interesting because this is not an elections office that owes Diebold, which would make sense because they've purchased election systems. It, it's a Republican political committee paying Diebold. We have a right to ask why they are collecting receivables from the Republican committee. Bev and Kathleen don't know what this item meant. What is known is that Diebold and some of its executives were major Republican fundraisers. In 2003, Walden Odell, the CEO of Diebold, had written a fundraising letter promising to deliver the votes of Ohio to George W. Bush. It's important that your company is impartial, isn't it? Yes. So why did your chief executive say, I am committed to delivering Ohio's vote to George W. Bush in 2004? That quotation that appeared in the letter 
is something that uh, he regrets. It's a situation where his personal preference has come over into his, his business practice and uh, he has committed to, to keeping a much lower profile when it comes to those types of activities because of that statement. You know, people talk about partisan ties to the voting companies, and they're right. That being said, we're also seeing that it's not quite as simple a picture. We have the state of Maryland and the state of Georgia have Democrats very tightly wed to use of the Diebold system, and it's the Republicans who are fighting against it there. And in my own home county, Seattle, King County, Washington, it's the Democrats who are pushing these systems and the Republicans who are a little bit skeptical. The new battleground was California, the center of the computer industry. And the Secretary of State, Kevin Shelley, was getting worried about security. Well, in 2003, Kevin Shelley discovered that one of the counties was running uncertified software. And so he ordered an audit of all of the county's voting machines in California. And he discovered that none of them were using certified software. They later even acknowledged that they were aware of the law, but even though they were aware of the law, they chose to ignore it, and they made those changes without seeking prior approval, which is a direct violation of state law. That's when I first came to realize uh, Diebold's uh, uh, lack of uh, integrity uh, as a company. Diebold was called to account by the state of California. At stake was millions of dollars worth of business, and Diebold was forced to put their president, Bob Urosevich, on the stand. As you know, uh, about a year ago, one version of the source code of the Diebold TSX system escaped your control, and some months later was investigated by uh, a group headed by Avi Rubin, Professor Avi Rubin of Johns Hopkins University, and they wrote a report which found numerous severe vulnerabilities in uh, the code that they saw. I would like your general reaction to those reports before we go a little more deeply. Basically, the code was stolen. In there is passwords. In there is our encryption technology. Okay, now, you know, we're not, I'm not a rocket science, but let me tell you, if somebody steals the key to my house, the first thing I'm going to do is probably change the lock. So that's what we went ahead and did. I'm mean, sorry, exactly. as you know, the code wasn't stolen. It was left on a public FTP site by, by your the, own company. The, the code was lifted off of our site, sir, and we still believe it was Downloaded stolen, from, on, what, 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 you know that. Okay. Now, of course, the source code, in fact, got out. The key is now published. Uh, what, in fact, what, in effect, you did, or your, your team did, is, is create a big, complex building, put locks on every door, use the same key for every lock, and then published a picture of the, uh, of the key on the wall. Uh, this was far below the minimal standards of security. But for Bev, there was a more basic problem than security. Could Diebold be trusted at all with the counting of the vote? On topic number one, Diebold, we have a company that lies. Yes, I'll say it, lies. Up here this morning, they were saying they'd made all the changes in the software to fix the multiple flaws that would have never been found in the beginning if I hadn't have found their files on the website, by the way. But, you see, there's something called release notes. It's a legal document. It is something that must show everything you did and did not change when you put out a new version. 
I obtained the release notes for GEMS. They did not fix any of the problems. This stuff was never corrected. I don't know what to say. How can you have a company say we want secret software that nobody, even the county registrars who are here testifying on their behalf, is allowed to look at? And when you look at it, you find flaws, and then they say, oh, you don't know what you're talking about, so you turn it over to scientific panels. They find flaws. They say, oh, don't worry about it. We corrected it, and that's a lie. Bob Urosevich, Diebold's president, did offer this statement defending Diebold election systems, also known as DESI. DESI understands that the SOS, the Secretary of State and the voting panel, are disappointed in the fact that the RNG Associates inventory report identified unqualified and uncertified software and are looking at DESI to acknowledge that this should not have happened. To be clear, there was no improper intent or motive on DESI's part to give rise to this situation. At the outset, I want to be crystal clear that these allegations of this report about Diebold's deceiving are not true and are factually not supported. A few days later, Kevin Shelley, the Secretary of State of California, announced the consequences for Diebold. I am decertifying the Diebold TFX system, banning its use in four counties where it is installed. Furthermore, I have taken the additional step, and I have the letter here, just signed upstairs, of asking the Attorney General to pursue criminal and civil actions against Diebold in this matter, based on findings of fraudulent actions. We will not tolerate deceitful tactics as engaged in by Diebold. Don't try to pull a fast one on the voters of California because there will be consequences if you do. The state brought a civil action against Diebold, but never pursued criminal charges. The lawsuit was eventually settled for a payment by Diebold of $2.6 million. Bev was clearly hitting the industry's profitability, and she got legal threats. It was, it was truly a difficult time, and it's the kind of thing where, you know, it kind of can make and break a marriage. I was very lucky that my husband was absolutely behind this because, you know, here we're looking at each other going, not only do we have no money, but we could get sued by the vendors because they think their stuff needs to be secret, and we could lose everything. And he simply said, you know, my family's been fighting for the right to vote. My husband's African-American. He said, my family's been right, fighting for the right to vote for six generations. And we're not going to stop now. In California, it was only the touchscreens that had been decertified. The central tabulating software, GEMS, was still in use. Now, the central tabulator is sort of the one machine to rule them all. It collects all the votes. And every company, not just Diebold, has this central tabulator. Because, of course, the way you vote is you vote in individual precincts. They're scattered around. And there has to be one machine to pull all these threads together, add them all up, and pronounce the winner. Bev wanted to find out if GEMS was really keeping the votes secure. And so she turned to computer security expert Dr. Hugh Thompson. I was at this massive hacker-slash-computer-security conference, and I get approached by this grandmotherly figure, and, and she tells me that, hey, I've got access to 
the tabulation software from one of the biggest electronic voting manufacturers on the planet. I'm like, wow, that's very interesting. And then she says, can you take a look at it for me? I'd say the thing that shocked me was how easy vote totals could be changed. So imagine you can go into a box and essentially rewrite history. And there's no record of you rewriting history. And the only record of the history itself is the thing that you changed. And that's pretty scary to me. Bev and Hugh worked out a way to demonstrate the insecurity of gems. She was invited to appear with her computer hack on national TV with former presidential candidate Governor Howard Dean. All right, Bev, show me how to do this. Well, what we have here is the central tabulator computer. Now, in a voting system, you have all these different voting machines at all the different polling places. All those machines feed into the one machine so it can add up all the votes. So, of course, if you were going to do something you shouldn't to a voting machine, would it be more convenient to do it to the 4,000 machines or to just come in here to one machine and, and deal with all of them at once? The GEMS program is the program that is the central tabulator program. And I'm going to put in a password here. Okay, we're in. Now, this is the official program that the county supervisor sees. As we can see here, Howard Dean has 1,000 votes, and Lex Luthor has 500. So you're beating Lex Luthor, and we're... Two to one. Yes. And Tiger Woods, unfortunately, doesn't have any votes yet. All right. All right, let's close this out. I was just showing you the legitimate way to go in and look at votes, which, All of right. course, you can't tamper with. Go to the Start menu, and I'm going to show you something tricky. And I want you to go to My Computer and just click that. And you're going to see some, come up, go to Local Disk C, and go to Program Files. Go to Central Tabulator Votes, and then go to the sum of the candidates which is that table. You see we have 800 votes here for you and 400 for Lex Luthor. Let's just flip those. We'll make that 400 and we'll give 100 votes to Tiger. Let's just see what happened here. We'll go back into GEMS the legitimate way and as you can see now Howard Dean only has 500 votes. Lex Luthor has 900 and Tiger Woods has 100 votes. Mm. We just edited the election. It took us 90 seconds. Diebold and election officials all over the U.S. still insisted that their systems were secure. They said that despite Bev's GEMS hack, there were checks and balances, and that inconsistencies in vote totals would be detected in an actual election. This was just two months before one of the closest presidential elections ever. Those checks and balances were about to be tested. Oh my goodness, you're getting so big! The world watches our great democracy function. All right. It's that magic moment when the greatest democracy on the face of the planet gets to show the world how we work. It would be nothing better for our system, for, um, for the election to be conclusively over tonight so that, uh, I think it's going to be me, so I can go on and and uh, lead this country. The politicians said everything was fine, but it wasn't. The machines weren't just insecure. They malfunctioned, leaving thousands without a vote. And now, nobody knows. On election day in 2004, um, 
we, like a lot of other organizations, had a voter helpline where people could call in and let us know the problems that they were experiencing. We logged in over 200,000 calls, and many of those people left a voice recording of what they actually experienced. When I made my selection, it jumped from the square that I touched to the square above. They said half the machines were broken. There was one voting booth, one, for 3,000 people. Seven and a half hours in line to vote. And they put two machines in another area with only 300 people and gave us two machines with 3,000 people. And they have a lot more in the outlying, richer communities, and they don't have lines there. I am hardly around the first of the three rooms that I have to wait. The line is out to the street. Four to five hour wait, you, you can't do. You can't do that. Women with children having to stand outside in the pouring down rain. There were a lot of people who ended up not being able to vote uh, because they just couldn't stay in those lines. There were a lot of elderly people there. It is not the people who do the choosing. Everything is so fixed. It's so fixed. There is a calamity going on out there about how elections are conducted in this country. And it results in less voter participation and potentially um, a lack of accuracy in who's either elected or what decisions are made in the polling places. As the precincts closed, the poll workers switched the machines to reporting mode, signed off on the results, and took the memory cards to the central tabulating computers. Well, let me see. America waited for the computers to give the official results. You sounding pretty upbeat right now, John. What are you hearing? But look, no Republican has ever won the White House without winning Ohio. That is a cliche. We repeat it a lot, but it also happens to be true. They've always said yes, Wisconsin and Iowa. If you look at the voting returns coming in right now, the latest I brought up a few minutes ago, I believe Senator Kerry has a narrow lead in both states. I didn't turn on the TV for the election results. And I didn't turn on the radio. Instead, I sat here filling out 3,000 Freedom of Information requests to go to every county in the United States to obtain the internal audit logs of those computers, knowing that we wouldn't get them for weeks after the election. And that it would probably be certified, and they would say, get over it, move on. And we would never know whether our election was controlled by 100 million voters or by one guy sitting in his grandmother's basement. Black box voting needed the logs of all activity on the voting machines so that they could conduct an investigation for the people. They wanted the vote count to be independent from partisan politics. In America, it is vital that every vote count and that every vote be counted. But the outcome should be decided by voters, not a protracted legal process. I would not give up this fight if there was a chance that we would prevail. 
But it is now clear that even when all the provisional ballots are counted, which they will be, there won't be enough outstanding votes for us to be able to win Ohio. And therefore, we cannot win this election. People were stunned. John Kerry had promised to challenge the machines and amassed a network of lawyers to protect the votes. And then, Kerry stopped any investigation by conceding, less than 12 hours after the polls had closed. Cliff Arnebeck, an Ohio election attorney, spoke with John Kerry shortly after. A call from Senator Kerry comes into the hotel room, which a group of us are there meeting with uh, Reverend Jackson. Reverend Jackson puts his phone on the table, hits speaker, and we're now in a conversation. The first part of the conversation is a dialogue between counsel and Kerry. And part of that dialogue includes Kerry sharing the fact that in New Mexico, no matter what the demographics of the, of the jurisdiction are, if, it, if the votes are being counted by optical scan machines, they're coming out for Bush. This is, to anyone who's familiar with the situation, this means Kerry knows there's fraud in that election. And the optical scan machines are the clue yeah, he's, what he's saying is that it's the, the, the optical scan machines are being rigged to produce a result for Bush, contrary to what the voters, the votes the voters are casting. So this is not our conspiracy theory. This is not something we have to prove to Kerry. Kerry is sharing this as a matter of fact. Because Kerry conceded the incredible resources that he had organized for potential post-election litigation was not in the picture. Kerry conceded, even though the results were from software he knew could be rigged, and the independent exit polls had predicted his victory. Now it was clear that the citizens would have to investigate the election themselves. Another 4 a.m. Uh, Bev and Black Box Voting decided to start in Volusia County, Florida, where Al Gore had received his negative votes in 2000. Bev wanted to start by checking the printed results from each voting machine. Um, our election, I thought, went extremely well, and I'm very tickled about it because it was my final election to perform. I'll be retiring on December 31st. So you can imagine how I was praying to come out with a smooth election at the end. <laughs> I have one question. Um, these are not copies of the signed ones. These are new ones. Now, one of the things we had asked for was the voting machine results tapes, copy of them, signed by the poll worker for election day, which was November 2nd. But the date was November 15th, and they were printed out minty fresh just for us, obviously. So what I was given was not at all what I asked for. Let me check with you. Great. Lana, the, um, the original tapes off of the machines, are they still out in the warehouse, or did you bring those in at the warehouse? They're out in the warehouse. 
we went to the Volusia County warehouse because we had learned that that's where the real poll tapes or results tapes from the voting machines were going to be. And we wanted to go there by surprise because we wanted to see what they were doing with them. To see what the machines had done with the votes, Bev needed to check the printed poll tapes from all the optical scan machines. If you add up all the poll tapes and there is a mismatch with the official results, then you know there's either been a mistake or vote tampering. Call on and call the sheriff's department. Go ahead. Let's go ahead and get the news over here. And these are signed poll tapes, signed off by the poll workers. Throwing poll tapes away is against federal law. They have to be kept for at least 22 months after an election. Hard to figure they would throw something like this away without noticing. But we did. That's what counts. So, count. <laughs> the county didn't want to investigate. They stuck to their line that the election had gone flawlessly, so there was no need. We have a significant anomaly here. I don't know what anomaly you're talking about, so I'm not agreeing that there's any How the polling place takes its time to be found in the garbage. I would say that as the supervisor of elections, you would be very concerned about this. Frankly, <laughs> you can't throw away polling place tapes from November 2nd that are signed by six poll workers and put them in the shredder. I think we all understand that. Bev decided to go through the poll tapes Deanie had given them and compare them with the original signed ones. We had asked for the signed poll tapes and they didn't give them to us, so we're looking at them now and they don't match the ones you guys gave us. So, okay, this is a big discrepancy. Okay. On the 215A00, um, signed. Signed. Mm-hmm. 
the number of votes for uh, Bush are 520 on the A01, it's 211. And that's a big, big discrepancy. You're hundreds of votes off between what we were given and what was signed. Okay, that's fine. We're going to put it back. Yeah, that one. This is fine. Okay. So this is 9 0. Okay. So what is your one that you're working on right now? 723 Meanwhile, around the back of the county offices, two sharp-eyed local residents were investigating. Hi, I'm, I'm Susan Pinchon, and I'm the executive director of the Florida Fair Elections Coalition, and I am going through the trash at the Supervisor of Elections office in Deland, Florida. Oh, look at this. These are polling tapes, and actually one of these tapes are the ones that we were missing from this morning. I'm in Volusia County, Florida, home of the home of the negative vote total. A third of the original records were either missing or incomplete. And so once again, the votes remained secret. If Volusia County was a bank and threw away the documents that added up money instead of votes, then the feds would have investigated immediately. But the feds stayed away. And while black box voting was able to show the secrecy itself, no one knew what the results really were. Our democracy could go out of business. We won't have a republic left. It won't be recognizable if we don't get rid of the secrecy. It was not set up to be a secret system. It became a secret system. And if we don't open this thing up again and quickly, we will never again see what's going on. We've given it up. We've lost it. We're going to have to go back to in there and take this back by whatever means necessary. In Ohio, citizens were angry, claiming that the election had been fraudulently counted and that voters had been turned away illegally. They needed a recount. In the end, it was the Green Party's presidential candidate, David Cobb, who decided enough was enough. I launched a recount in order to investigate the allegations of voter suppression and fraud that were pouring in. This was a chance for black box voting to really find out how the votes are counted. And Kathleen went back to her hometown, Cleveland, in Cuyahoga County, Ohio. January when the recount was going on. The snow uh, and blizzards and traffic, we, we, we would laugh and say, well, you know, this is what we have to do to get our democracy back. We'll do it. Uh, although we would rather be home 
in front of the fireplace. Cleveland, in Cuyahoga County, is the largest jurisdiction in Ohio, with around one million voters, large enough to alter the outcome of the presidential election, a swing county in a swing state. What are you getting up so early for today, and what are you going to go do today? Count the votes and make sure that count is right. The reason that I bought a camera is irrefutable proof. I didn't ever want to be misunderstood or misquoted, so that way there'd be no question. Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? Let me just introduce a couple of individuals. Uh, one of those individuals is Jack Maiden, who is our elections coordinator. Uh, the ballot manager, who is Kathy Dreamer here also, who will be facilitating. still using punch card ballots, counted by a computer running secret software. The only way of checking this computer's results is to hand count the ballots. Under Ohio law, however, you must first hand count a random 3% sample. You are only required to recount all the votes if that sample doesn't match the computer results. Recounts are not just for the public to see. The public is meant to check that the election results are correct. After all, it's their vote. Almost immediately, the observers suspected that someone had tampered with the ballots. Seems like all the bush and the curry seem to be like swamped together. So there might have been some pretty short Somehow those uh, cards were manipulated so that they were grouped. And I don't know anything about how that happened. Nobody's been able to answer that question for me. We've got about two more hours worth of work on hand counted ballots. And that's it? And then we'll continue to run through the tabulation machine. And there's very successful work. And everything's going very well. Great. Thank you. And I did manage to capture all the election officials saying, everything's running smoothly, everything's going perfectly. So whenever they say that, you know, <laughs> They've done something to, to make certain of that. Later, the county prosecutor charged that staff had counted a large number of precincts in secret before the public recount. Then they kept back the ballots that didn't add up, giving the citizens a 3% sample that wasn't random and wasn't legal. The process by which the three percent of precincts for the hand count three percent is a random random pick to make the um, oh, to make a number. To Jackie Maiden later stated that she had been following the normal procedure in pre-sorting the ballots. However, she also said that to her knowledge, there was no discarding of any precincts which did not add up, and she did not believe this had occurred. 
But the other 97% of the ballots were never recounted. And no one knows if the software had added those votes correctly. The recount is nothing but a charade. It's a complete and utter waste of time. It's a, it's a bit of theater, uh, if you will. Uh, and it was done, in my opinion, to ensure that there was never an actual recount conducted, but more importantly, to ensure that there was never an investigation into the underlying allegations of voter suppression and election fraud that took place. Mr. President, the certificate of the electoral vote of the well-known and great state of Ohio seems to be regular in form and authentic. It appears therefrom that George W. Bush of the state of Texas received 20 votes for President Dick Cheney of the state of Wyoming received 20 votes for Vice President. For what purpose does the member from Ohio rise? I said, I object to the Ohio vote. And before they could ask me, I said, and I do have a senator. There had not been a challenge to the presidential vote in Congress for over a century. And it was recognition of the failures and disenfranchisement in Ohio. Has the senator signed the objection? The senator has signed the objection. An objection presented in writing and signed by both a representative and a senator complies with the law. I raise this objection because I am convinced that we as a body must conduct a formal and legitimate debate about election irregularities. I raise this objection to debate the process and protect the integrity of the true will of the people. When I made a decision in conjunction with Senator Barbara Boxer to object to the Ohio vote, you would have thought that I shot somebody in the head and that I wanted something, uh, that something terrible. The problem we confront with this debate is that it serves to plant the insidious seeds of doubt in the electoral process. They accused the president, who we are told is apparently a closet computer nerd, of personally overseeing the development of vote-stealing software. We also were all elected under the same rules and regulations that we're discussing today. I don't know that we helped the process. I don't know that we helped the process by casting doubt on what all of those people that work at elections all over America do. Those favoring yeas and nays will rise. Sufficient number has arisen. The yeas and nays are ordered. Members will record their votes by electronic vote. Although the Ohio election was certified by Congress, politicians had been forced to look at a system that served themselves and not the people. Tragically, around the same time, Andy Stevenson was diagnosed with cancer. He died in July. Maybe this is the legacy I'll leave. Maybe I'll leave this behind for people to remember me so that when I, when I do go, when my time comes to, to meet my maker, I'll have something, that, a little piece that I left behind that, that people can point and say, well, yeah, he was here. In Tallahassee, Florida, the supervisor of elections, Ion Sancho, wanted to be absolutely sure that when his computers declared a winner, 
It was because that was the will of the people. And the vendors have entirely too much power in the elections arena today. Election officials are really overly dependent upon the vendors. Vendors control what kind of technology may be offered in a state. We're essentially hostage to the financial desires of private interests to conduct the most public of our procedures, public elections. Ion asked Black Box Voting to look at his Diebold optical scan system, and they invited computer security expert Hari Hursty from Finland. This is a first. We're going to be looking at uh, the machines, the real machines, but the real system that's actually been used in real elections. This is exciting. Welcome to Tallahassee. Hi, Harry Harris, nice to meet you. Hi, I'm Sancho, Harry. This is where we count the votes on election night. Thomas James. Thomas, how are you doing? Very fine. One of the things that the vendor told us was that people would not be able to access this, that, that every time you entered into the system, that the system would record that. Dr. Hugh Thompson and Harry Hursty believed that they could change vote totals without being caught. Tried hacking gems, the computer's vote counting program. He used an election held at a local high school. Nadia Smith had come in second with 322 votes. They decided to make her the winner. So I go into this election file, and if I do, I'm asked for a password, and I have no idea what the password is. But Hugh had written a program that automatically looked for Nadia's vote total and then changed it to 5,000. When they called up the results page, Nadia had won, but the computer showed no evidence of fraud. It does give me great concern over the failure of the system to realize that you can slide by and come around through another direction and bypass the password. But Hugh could have been caught if the final totals on gems were checked against the original printed out results. Hari realized that every vote is stored on a memory card before the totals are printed. So if you can hack the memory cards, you can control an election. The real they have to be very very close to the source of the information um, in the, that environment. The only possibility was the memory card. Hari wanted to find out what exactly was inside the Diebold ballot box. Yeah. And so he bought a memory card reader off the internet. And within a couple of days, he found that the cards didn't just contain votes. There was a program or executable code. Well, if someone would have told me that in this system there's a living thing, an executable, modifiable program stored in the same place as the very data which is the most secure in this system, I would say you have to be misunderstanding something crazy or lying. Ari wrote a report for black box voting warning that this program lurking in the memory card could be used to change the result of an election. What happened after that was that Diebold 
basically dismissed and stonewalled the report. Diebold sent letters to officials across America denying that there was any executable code on the memory cards. Back in Cuyahoga County, Ohio, home of the infamous recount, the chair of the Board of Elections, Bob Bennett, was on the brink of investing $20 million in Diebold systems. It's a standalone system, votes are encrypted, so if anyone tries to tamper with those uh, election results, immediately shuts down the system. So you've got built-in protection within the system. I'm sorry, you've been very kind. No. So far, you're doing very well. Thank you, sir. Bob Bennett was also the chair of the Republican Party in Ohio, the party that Diebold had raised money for. Citizens were there to record, observe, and hopefully make a difference. Among them, Kathleen and her college buddy, Victoria Lovegren. Basically, I would like to know why. What were your decision rationale? For even your own criterion, Diebold does not win. Well, it's a bad decision, and it's gonna, you know, you're gonna, it's gonna come back to bite you because you're already in trouble. People do not trust Cuyahoga County. They do not trust the recount here. You're in trouble. Right now, we are still in the process of completing the negotiations on the default contract. We have made that expression. It's not likely that we're going to go back unless there's something drastic that happens in that and change our decision on that. So Bev decided it was time to make something drastic happen. Three months later, Diebold was back in town to complete the sale. Knowing that Diebold was going to be showing up at a public meeting, the next strategy was to go there and get their head engineer on videotape saying you can't change the votes on the memory card. So my question for Diebold would be, Again, either do you not know what was done in these security tests, or did you just tell something that's not true? I think that deserves a response from Diebold in the Harrison question. Okay, but my changing And did they know or not? It is my understanding that because there is no executable excuse me, program on the memory card, that the actual vote on the memory card cannot be altered. Could you remind us, are you an engineer yourself? No, I am not an engineer, but I can work with our engineering crew. In fact, pass myself up here for one second. Hi, I'm Pat Green. I'm director of uh, research and development for Google. Okay. Ms. Harris, could you um, phrase your question again? Can vote be changed using only a memory card? No, I do not believe votes can be changed using only a memory card. That particular situation is detected by the software. Uh, the, the report uh, that was written that I have read guesses that something like that might be possible, but says that they did not actually accomplish that or even test that. These are very strong statements. These are statements that we took to be a challenge. These are statements that we wanted to find out if they were true or not. And so Bev went back to Tallahassee to see if votes could be changed. For 
Brian, there was another reason to test the memory cards. As one of the most trusted Florida election officials, he had been appointed to oversee the 2000 presidential recount. The recount might have discovered why Volusia County's computers counted backwards to minus 16,022 votes. But when the Supreme Court stopped that recount, Ian was left with unanswered questions. One of the reasons that interests me about the Volusia County situation and what happened there is that we in Leon County used the identical voting system. The Diebold AccuVote 2000. And in the 17 years that I've been an election administrator, um, my experience is that that kind of subtraction cannot occur accidentally. Someone consciously tried to affect that computer system and consciously tried to perpetuate a fraud to steal votes. During his research, Harry had discovered that Diebold's memory cards effectively allowed negative votes. Not them, no dead. What are we going to do here is modify one card and then bring it to the election supervisor Ayer Sanchez's office. Plug it as the real card in any election to the real election system and run ballots through. And that's the same system which have been used in a number of previous elections. And we'll see that what is the power in the ballot box. This should be just an empty box containing the votes, but it has more capabilities than that. So it's a very simple process. You just add the card in. You run the rewrite program, tell where to find the scanner, and tell exactly what file you want to be put in, and off it goes. Harry's hack is a variation on stuffing the ballot box before anyone has voted. But this is always suspicious, because you end up with more votes than voters. So Harry used five negative votes for one candidate, and then gave the other one five positive votes. So as people cast their ballots, the total number of votes always equals the total number of voters. But was Hari right? Black box voting went back to Tallahassee for the ultimate test. Bev asked Susan Pynchon from Volusia County to observe. She too had found evidence of problems with the memory cards while sifting the trash from the Volusia County Board of Elections. This is from Mark Early of Diebold, and it says, how did the number of memory card failures on election day increase from the 17 reported on November 3rd to 25? I don't know if we'll ever know why these memory cards failed or if, see, one of the big questions in my mind is, did they actually fail? Or could they have been used for other purposes? Susan Berniger from Louisiana and Dr. Hugh Thompson also came to watch Harry's hack. Always good to see you. Always good to see you, Kathleen. Come on in. Well, let me tell you what we're going to do today. We have constructed a mini election, uh, but Harry Hersey, as you have served as a technical advisor of how to do this, we're going to ask you to remain outside. After you, let me introduce you to my election staff. 
not prepared some sort of a, a device that has been pre-rigged, pick the number and then we'll grab that unit and that will be the device that we will count the ballots on. I just feel like this is the winner. Okay, and the winner is unit 15191. What we have here is a programmed optical scan ballot. Uh, there is only one question on this ballot. Can the votes on the Diebold system be hacked using the memory card? I have only touched the memory card, not the other parts of the Diebold election system, which is going to be used today. Only the memory card. Uh, I, I can certainly speak for myself and Harry and that we're going to vote yes. All right, then let's have the rest of us vote no. Two individuals. Hugh and Harry will be voting yes, the rest of us will be voting no, and then we'll scrutinize the ballots afterwards to ensure that that is indeed the mark. I will say that I'm wrong, and Diebold is right, and I'm going to say uh, no, they cannot be hacked. It's impossible. So I vote no. I'm going to film myself voting. Excuse me. I'm going to mark this ballot now. Okay. Dr. Thompson? I am going to mark this ballot. Yes. Seen some pretty concerning things. Well, it's down to your ear the last voter, Harry. All right. I think it's good to be. So I vote for yes. You will be the second yes. All right, I am here is the memory card I have touched. Okay, now this is the only piece of Diebold equipment that you've used. That's correct. Well, thank you. Let me take your ballot in. <laughs> this card will go into this slot. The next activity that the election worker does on the morning of the election is turn the machine on, making it live to receive votes. When you do that, this machine will produce what is called a zero total tape. The machine is going through a self-test analysis, and then it will spontaneously turn on. This is Harry's card that is telling us that there are zero votes stored in the memory. Okay, let me get the ballots. Let's insert a yes ballot. We're going to put in another no. Seven. The last no ballot. Eight. Placing the ender card in this device and telling it to turn off its counting function and do its reporting function will now cause the voting machine to print out a tape reading the number of votes that it had just read. Oh my. <laughs> oh poor. Oh no. What is it? What is it? Seven yes, one no. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my gosh. 
see. Here's the tape. Seven people said it could be X, and we put through six and two. Six, six no, and two, two yes. yes. Oh my gosh, do you know what this means? How do we know that Hari didn't just change the report and the votes themselves on the memory card are still correct? If that was the case, when they go into GEM, the results would be different, isn't that right? The only way to know that is to read them into GEMS and to check the vote total. Should we do that? I think we should because I want to confirm for my own analysis is this just a superficial Right, that's a good, that's a good question. Did we just change the words on this paper? And we will upload this memory card not to, I would have certified this election as a true and accurate result of a vote. of this equipment. The vendors are driving the process of voting technology in the United States. I would much rather at this point, I think, focus on allowing citizens to select technology that satisfies their needs. Diebold accused Ion of foolishness and apparent negligence, insisting that only authorized people should test their systems for security. They said that the hack was equivalent to leaving your car unlocked with the windows down and keys left in the ignition. 
But scientists at Berkeley University later confirmed Hari's findings. They discovered a further 16 security flaws in Diebold's touchscreen machines. ES&S and Sequoia claimed their systems were safe. And Diebold maintains that they have upgraded their software to make it even more secure. They also insist that their electronic voting systems are still more accurate than their predecessors. But now, everyone is asking, why can votes be altered without leaving a trace? Cuyahoga, however, did not change their minds after the hearings and spent $22 million on touchscreen and optical scan machines from Diebold. is under attack. The literal counting of the vote is now owned by a private corporation. We were extremely pleased with
with the the way our equipment functioned during the recall election. They would be the first machine in the history of man that would fail safe. The results will be accurate and reliable. How much more damage can I stand? Yes, I'll say it live. You could connect to that machine, get complete control over it, change votes, um, change the software. This stuff was never corrected. What in effect you did is create a big complex building, put locks on every door, use the same key for every lock, and then published a picture of the, uh, of the key on the wall. Does this seem to be a suitable security architecture to you? A busted deal here in the promised land. At the time of the most important election in our country's history, we have the greatest doubts as to whether thousands of voters are going to once again be disenfranchised. Only this time, there will be no evidence. For the first time, many Americans will be voting on paperless electronic voting machines, which are being rolled out across the nation. To begin voting, press 6. Election officials are trying to persuade the public to trust this new technology. How do I know that my vote's been counted? The memory should have taken it. But how do I know that it has? How do I know the system didn't crap out? Nobody knows. I don't know. This is would you like your life to depend on the accuracy of this machine? Uh, this is the first time we're going to use it, so I... Let me ask you a question. Would you like your life to depend on the accuracy of this machine? No. Okay. Bev Harris, a grandmother from Seattle, was curious about the machines and the corporations that make them. I had some questions about these voting machines, and I started looking on Google. And I wanted to find out how the voting machines worked. What happened next really changed my life. One reason I was so curious is because it's a secret how they work. The companies that make them keep it a secret, none of the computer scientists felt they could even look at the code because the code was supposed to be a secret. The certification labs that examine it keep their process a secret of what they do, and even the election officials who buy the equipment are prohibited by their contract from ever looking and seeing how it works. Bev did a simple search on the Internet for Diebold Election Systems, one of the three major manufacturers of voting machines. I stumbled upon an obscure web page which contained the crown jewels for Diebold Election Systems. It contained 40,000 files, all of their programs, that had been sitting there and accumulating for six years. What Bev found on Diebold's unsecured site was the secret software that counted the votes in 37 states. 70% of Americans will be voting electronically in the November presidential election, and Diebold, based in Ohio, is the market leader. The FTP site was an unfortunate situation, I admit to that. It was a situation where that information was out there, it was captured, which was uh, our fault. We made a mistake, and uh, we readily admit that. Will it happen again? No, it will not. After finding the file, you know, I sort of collected together some various computer scientists, and uh, Dr. Dill, I believe, Dr. David Dill from Stanford, passed the files to Dr. Avi Rubin, who was from uh, a security institute at Johns Hopkins University. The problem that Bev has discovered is, is a pretty significant security hole, and it does 
open the way for people uh, to really seriously manipulate the election in a way that's very difficult to detect. He examined it and wrote a paper, and by July 24th, it was in the New York Times under the headline, Stunning, Stunning Security Flaws Found in Devolt Election Systems. No one had ever had a chance to analyze the code in these machines. The companies that make them keep it proprietary and claim that it's a trade secret. And so we had a chance to see what's really going on inside of these machines. I teach a lot of graduate-level computer security courses at the Florida Institute of Technology. And if someone submitted the Diebold Jam server version that Bev showed to me as a final project, they would fail. The architecture is just that concerning. What grade would you give them? Dr. Thompson looked at the central tabulator for Diebold, which is something that not many people had looked at up until now. It's called the GEMS system, G-E-M-S. And the central tabulator is one of the most vulnerable systems and one of the most tempting targets because it controls the most votes at once. Central tabulators for Diebold are active in a thousand counties. Each county has one or sometimes two, and they count up to two million votes at a time. Sequoia, ESNS, and Diebold uh, have the lion's share of the market. In fact, ESNS and Diebold alone have about 80% of the electronic voting market. And the two senior executives at those two companies are actually brothers. So it could be argued that the, there is somewhat of a cozy relationship there. They keep saying their machines are flawless. There's never been a problem, even though we can by now bring forward solid evidence of hundreds of elections that have been miscounted and that have indeed been flawed. Why should we trust Diebold? Accuracy and security and reliability of the equipment. First of all, let me just mention there's a lot of checks and balances in addition to the actual equipment. The accuracy's been there, the reliability's been there, everything is tested before it's ever deployed for an election. Time after time, our equipment has certainly proved to be accurate and reliable. Diebold has a very strong marketing uh, effort and they continue to just say their lines, which is the machines are 100% secure, there's never been fraud in an election. Our company reviews and, and checks and verifies software for many of the Fortune 500 and for the U.S. government. And so, you know, it's kind of seeing this thing in, in software that's going to be used to count votes was, was really disturbing. The biggest problem that he found was that there was more than one way into it. There was the official way in, and then there were these sort of secret backdoor ways in. And using those backdoor ways, you could alter the results without leaving any trace. Andy Stevenson was running for Secretary of State in Seattle when he read Bev's revelations on her website, blackboxvoting.org. But when I first saw the Gems hack, I was still actually running for office. And my reaction was, is, <laughs> bleep, <laughs> I'm screwed. So I sent Bev an email offering her to help her in any way that I could. I asked him to call and find out if Bob Yurosevich was still the president of Diebold because there was some question about it at that time. They were keeping him kind of under wraps. So I called his house and his wife answered and apparently was on a plane and she said he'd, he'd call me back after I said, well, I heard that he's not president anymore of Diebold. And almost immediately got a call back from Bob Yurosevich threatening him and saying, you better back off or you're going to get a visit. I said, from who, Bob? <laughs> the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus? And he says, I'm serious. And I said, so am I. I'm from Texas. I'm not afraid of you. And so I called Andy up about 10.30 at night and said, you want to take off tomorrow early? And uh, let's go make some visits. 
and I took off for a nine-state tour to find out what's really going on. Andy discovered that many states, including Washington, were using illegal software that hadn't been tested to check if it counted votes accurately. You know, it's darn hard to get answers about our own voting system. Andy and I approached Mr. Evan, who's the assistant Washington State Attorney General, and asked him questions about what we do if the Secretary of State certifies software illegally. And he said, well, I defend the Secretary of State. So you can't report it to us. I don't know if there's anything I can do here. I'd encourage you to take this up with the Secretary of State's office. They're the Secretary of State's office has lied to us. They've lied to us. Yeah. They're the appropriate authority. It's a criminal matter if you have Secretary of State's office who is presiding over the use of software in elections machines that has, and the software itself is in violation of our own state law. Not to my knowledge. Um, what redress does the citizens have? are rigged, how do we kind of change that? Yeah, that's an issue you have to take up with the Secretary of State. There isn't anything else I can add. What was Thank your name? Jeff Evan. The headquarters in the... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.